And we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed and Man. Today, we're going to talk about the most infamous serial killer in U.S. history. We've got a lot to talk about, guys. Let's get right into it, man. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what Fed it covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. You see him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young, young slime life. Here and after referred to as YSL. The defendant is 6'9". Uh, and then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6'9 ran. Well, I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. AKA Bushaisi violated. In order to stay away from the victim. Bush arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, oh, Miami Strip Club, injured one this person. Is the, this is the one that, that's going to fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. And the first bomb went off right here. Inspired by Al Qaeda. Two terrorists, their brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lin Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. So he was in this bad boy. We're gonna go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. And we're back. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It, man. Uh, happy to have you guys here, man. This is gonna be a big one. Um, <laughs> this has probably been one of the most requested cases for us to do in a very long time. Uh, between O Block and the YSL case. Ted Bundy has always been up there. As you guys know, I've been covering the serial killers uh, more recently. I did uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Then I followed that up with the killer clown, John Wayne Gacy. And now we're on the infamous Ted Bundy. Uh, so quick announcement before we get into this uh, case, guys, because we got a lot to cover on this. I apologize for the slight delay, but I was spending, I've pretty much been spending weeks re uh, researching this case. And then I spent all day putting everything together for you guys and a systematic review where it's going to make sense and, and uh, you know, you'll be able to understand and digest it properly from a chronological standpoint because there's so many different things and so many different pieces on this case. But quick announcements, guys. Uh, number one, like the video, please. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the channel. On here, we break down criminal cases. We do a live stream every Sunday, and then we go ahead and give you guys a documentary breakdown every Thursday, and then I release clips in between. Uh, this channel is specialized towards, you know, reacting towards criminal cases of all different types. I've covered, as you guys saw from the intro, Terrorism, public corruption, espionage, uh, bank robberies, gang cases, RICOs, everything, man. I have all different types of cases I've covered, former special agent of Homeland Security. So, you know, I'm in a position to be able to speak about this stuff from an investigator's perspective. So it's unique because I don't think anyone else on YouTube does this type of stuff. I've seen like, you know, former police officers kind of react to stuff. I've seen like lawyers, but you've never seen a former federal agent uh, do this. So, uh, so if you're new here, please subscribe to the channel, like the video. So quick announcement before we get uh, into today's episode. Uh, number one, patreon.com slash freshfit. Get all the behind the scenes content there. And then also, guys, the party real fast. We're going to have the party January 14th. It's going to be here in Miami. It's going to be a rooftop spot uh, somewhere in downtown Miami. 
And uh, tickets are on sale now. The 550 price point is sold out. However, we're selling tickets at the uh, at the second tier, which I think is like 1500 or whatever. Now, I want you guys, before you guys get mad about the price, understand this. We're going to do a free meetup with all of our supporters for the 1 million subscriber party first. Okay, we're going to meet somewhere in the public, meet all y'all, shake hands, take pictures, talk, etc. Shoot the shit with you guys for a few hours. Then we're going to leave and go to the party. The party's going to have celebs there. It's going to have security. It's going to have open bar. It's going to have a bunch of girls. It's going to be a rooftop. Obviously, that isn't expensive. That isn't cheap, guys. It's extremely expensive. We spend tens of thousands of dollars to go ahead and get you all this party. So, um, so yeah. But you know, like I said before, the paywall is there just to make it exclusive, to keep it, you know, to a certain level. Um, it's gonna be, it's gonna be awesome, guys. So, uh, but have no fear. If you don't have any money, we're gonna meet with you guys for free, regardless, because we love you guys. We wouldn't be here without y'all. And this channel's almost at 100k as well, man. So, something to channel. You're yeah, on already. Marco, Marco. Um, what was that? Oh, okay. One one ticket left for what? For the five thousand. For the okay. And then if you guys want to kick it with us and hang out with us and you know VIP and get you know come to the studio, meet us and everything, we do have a five thousand dollar tier uh, that you guys can jump in. Like I said before, you don't have to spend a dollar. We'll meet you for free regardless. But if you want to partake in the party, the girls and the booze and the rooftops and you know all that other stuff, meet some celebs. Check us out over there. Uh, and then um, I'm here with Christina, by the way, as well. Christina, you have anything you want to tell the people? Um, hi. Um, yeah, if you guys want any like cases done, just contact the IG Fetty1811. And before they even ask, Young Dolph. Yeah, Dolph. Young Dolph, what about him? Yeah. Um it's it's honestly it's been a it's been a pain in that pain. I'm just gonna say that it's been a pain trying to get like somebody to actually go there and not be afraid because they've just been weird. All right. So long story short with the Young Dolph case, because you guys have been asking for this one for months as well. That's up there with the Ted Bundy's case, uh Ted Bundy case uh request. Long story short, anyone we send over there to go ahead and get documents for that case, guys, they start asking them a bunch of questions. Hey, why do you want these documents? What's your name? Where do you live? Et cetera. So some scaring off a bunch of the people that we've asked to go get the documents for us. Yeah. We're still working to get them, guys, because I want to give you guys the, the most thorough breakdown on that investigation. I mean, I could do it now, but I want the documents. It's you know, as you guys same. know, we've broken a lot of cases with getting documents first, such as the Tory Lanez case, et cetera, where I broke for you guys that, yo, the doctor even said himself that she stepped on glass. It didn't necessarily come from gunshot wounds, but you only get that type of stuff from getting the documents. So it is what it is. Did you have something you want to say? No, it's just that. It's just, it's honestly, because with all the cases I've been dealing with, yeah. it's never been like this. So okay. it's just. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to keep working for you guys on that. Um, on that young Dolph case. We haven't given up, guys. Trust me. We're still working on it. Um, but yeah, they've been extremely difficult because uh, uh, they try to say, oh, it has gang ties. We don't want to release those documents, even though they're public record. So anyway, uh, let me hit some of these super chats real fast. Thank you guys so much for the donations. I really appreciate it. We got here uh, Austrian and Serbo-Croatian top goes, hey, Martin, I'm a 17 uh, Serbo-Croatian watching from Vienna, Austria. Just got out of the relationship because she's doing 304 stuff. Stress only Don DeMarco. Yeah, bro. You Don't give these 304s your time, man. It ain't worth it. Um, what else we got here? And then we got Darnell Elliott. Shout out to you, Mr. Gaines. You are late again. I'm giving you a counseling statement for this. You need to get off black people time. 15 minute prior former Fed employee. Hey man, it is what it is, bro. You guys want the video to be good or not? Uh, I could just start it, but then you'll, I have to pause it and stuff like that. I, I'd rather start a little bit later and make sure that it's good to go versus like, you know, starting it on time. And they're like, Oh, sorry guys. Give me a second here. You know? Oh God, give me a break. So I'd rather not to do that. Uh, Jay Williams, 50 West Coast, watching for Fletzy and Glinko. Hey, shout out to you, my friend. Congrats on your uh, career that you're embarking on, your federal law enforcement career. Marin, this channel is very inspiring as I'm looking at going the 1811 route next. I'm currently here for UT, uh, UPTP uniform police training. All right, shout out to you, bro. Uh, congratulations on that. 
uh, just make it through Fletzy, bro. Just get the hell out of, you know, go through. It is what it is. Put your head down, do the work and, you know, get the hell out of there. It sucks. I dabble in the dark. Myron's alter ego. Thank you, sir. Uh, <laughs> you guys are fucking hilarious. And then did I miss anything? No. Mm-hmm. All right. And then notoriously welcome to being a new member for the show. And we already got 1000 y'all in here. So, okay. Before I get into this breakdown, guys, like the video, I'm really excited to break this one down. This has been probably the most requested serial killer by far for you guys uh, that you wanted to get broken down. So it took, you know, weeks of research. I watched a bunch of different documentaries, watched the Netflix special, watched a bunch of bullshit documentaries in the process as well. So what I've basically done, guys, is I've gathered all the most pertinent content and aligned it in a way where we'll be able to go through it systematically and following the timeline of events. But before we get into that, who the hell is uh, Theodore Robert Bundy? All right, this is who he is, guys. Um, born November 24, 1946, died January 24, 1989, American serial killer who kidnapped, raped, and murdered numerous young women and girls during the 1970s and possibly earlier. After more than a decade of denials, he confessed to 30 murders committed in seven states between 1974 and 1978. Actually, they ended up finding out that he had murders before 1974, guys. Uh, His true victim total is unknown and is significantly higher. So they were able to pin him back to about 30 to 36. But, um, you know, he allegedly what he confessed to. But uh, that's a quick little overview of who he is, guys. Uh, This is a famous photo taken uh, in 78 when he was in Florida, when he got indicted uh, and the sheriff was reading the indictment in front of him, which I will go ahead and show you guys that video later on. But for us to understand who the hell this guy was, we got to get into his beginnings. Okay. Um, and then just so y'all know, Christina's going to be highlighting every single super chat that comes on. Uh, we're going to be, I'm going to read them, you know, every time I take a break or whatever, but I want to make sure we get through this because we got a lot to cover here, guys. Um, but yeah, without further ado, man, let's go ahead and start playing this thing. Uh, this is going to cover his, uh, his upbringing. Cause I think this is very important for you guys to see what led to the crazy person, uh, that we ended up seeing later on. Okay. And- This killer story begins in 1946. Theodore Robert Bundy was born on the 24th of November at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. So you guys see it right on early. No father figure born to a mom that uh, at a wedlock with with zero masculine presence. Okay, Uh, in his early childhood. This was the 1940s in America, that the ideal nuclear family was mum and dad who were married, that nice family unit where everything is very neat and and very defined. And people who were outside of that ideal really were stigmatized. To avoid... Yeah, guys, nuclear family was the way to do things back then in the 40s. You know, there was none of this, you know, single mother bullshit that we got going on nowadays. Like, I'm by myself, I'm strong and independent. Like, that didn't exist. If you were a woman and you had a child out of wedlock, it was, it was shunned. Okay. It was not acceptable. So that's why they had shelters like that back in the forties. I mean, obviously nowadays that wouldn't exist because it would be overcrowded. Uh, and also just want to let y'all know I'm streaming live on Twitch as well, because since I'm using documentaries to go ahead to uh, different documentaries to piece this together for you guys and cutting out all the bullshit and giving you guys the most pertinent stuff, what might happen is they might shut the stream down in the middle, right? For copyright, whatever the hell they may be, even though it's a reaction video commentary. So if that happens, Go on over to Twitch, okay, guys? So I am live on Twitch right now. The the Twitch is fresh and fit. Stay on YouTube, but if it does go down, end up open up another tab just in case and watch it on Twitch as well, all right? Just give you guys a, a warning here because if it does go down, I want to make sure y'all still get the content. All right, let's keep going. That judgment, Ted's 22-year-old mother, Eleanor, moved back to her parents' home in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where her parents brought up Ted as their own. 
The unusual part of his childhood is how he's raised. He's adopted by his grandparents. He's raised alongside a person who he has told is his sister. Imagine that. Like, <laughs> your mom is your sister and you didn't know. Like, what the hell? But she wasn't. She was actually his mother. This arrangement went on for almost four years with Ted's grandparents as his main carers. His grandfather was quite a violent character. So that suggests to me that very early on in his life, he's almost in a bit of a survival mode. I'm not safe within this home. Just before his fourth birthday, Eleanor moved to Tacoma, Washington. And just so you guys know, this is where he ends up, you know, living most of his adult life is in the state of Washington. That's where he, he identifies where he's from, etc. Um, so he moves from the New England. Uh, well, actually, in this case, from New, from you know Vermont to Philly, and then bam, all the way out west to Tacoma, Washington, and that's where he ends up doing most of his uh, you know growing up. There she met and married Johnny Bundy in 1951. They formally adopted Ted when he was five years old. The couple had four children together, but Ted reportedly didn't form a close bond with his new family and still believed his mother was his sister. Ted Bundy is somebody who has always been really conscious of his social class. He came from quite humble beginnings, that the family were quite poor, and, and he was really quite aware of that and really quite embarrassed and ashamed by it. And except All right, so he ends up going to the University of Washington, right? He was, he was a smart guy, guys, which is why, okay, this was so wild because, um, and you guys are going to see as we continue to play this on later, that uh, Bundy was extremely charismatic, charming, pause, good looking dude. So uh, he was able to evade detection for quite a bit of time. So we'll go ahead and uh, go into the college portion of, um, of his timeline. But in 1966, he enrolled at the University of Washington in Seattle. And suddenly, which, by the way, UW is an L, by the way, guys, I want to tell you all that right now. OK. And the reason why I say that is because I went to Northeastern. They're the real Huskies, not University of Washington. Well, let's keep going. Appeared <laughs> to blossom. He was considered charming. He was considered well dressed. He was considered educated. And at that time, that was the only thing that people really paid much attention to. Ted was popular at the University of Washington. His professors thought he was great, that he was brilliant. Research has shown that the prettier people get the better grades and the better placements, and the not-so-pretty people don't do quite so well. Yeah, this is the halo effect, guys. Um, in other words, if you're ugly, life sucks a lot. you got to work a lot harder, my friends. <laughs> and that, I think, came to the point where people because he was such a handsome young man, basically overlooked any type of emptiness that was the core of him. Anne Rule, now a best-selling author, was a volunteer at the crisis clinic, a suicide helpline. When she met- Yes, you guys heard that right. Your boy, Ted Bundy, was working at a suicide hotline, uh, crisis hotline. Met the attractive, charismatic young Bundy. Ted and I would work as a team Ted was wonderful on the phone. He was sounded caring. Uh, he was interested in people. I can I can still picture him hunched over the desk with a phone to his head. 
And many times um, we saved lives, which seems very ironic to me now. But I got the, the sweet Ted, and who would walk me out to my car at two in the morning when my shift was over. And he'd say, Ann, please lock the doors. I don't want anything bad to happen to you on the way home. Well, I'd just been locked up with probably the most dangerous man in, in the Western states. <laughs> Yo, she, this, this woman does not know how lucky she is because this is right around the time the killing spree pretty much is beginning, if not has already started. Now, remember, they documented his killing starting in 1974, right? However, they were able to put, yeah, pin it back to 1973 almost. So this woman was working at a suicide uh, crisis hotline with Ted Bundy. And during the day, he was, you know, keeping people from putting guns in their mouths. But during the night, he was out here chasing and hitting chicks with crowbars and shit, which you guys are going to see here in, here in a second. Um, but insane. And this is a big part, guys, as to why Bundy was able to evade detection for so long. He just fit in plain sight. He didn't have the traditional crazy, you know, serial killer look. You know, he didn't have that thousand yard stare like a Dahmer. He didn't look, he didn't have like the, the weirdoness of um, John Wayne Gacy and the homosexuality. He was a heterosexual guy that was smart, charismatic. And you guys are going to see, ends up going to law school. And he was able to blend right in and people were unsuspecting. Never had a clue. Dan Lazares, a young law student, shared the same boarding house as the seemingly bright and gifted Bundy. The Ted Bundy that I knew, there were things about him that were, were special, I would want to say. Um, uh, charisma. Um, I remember thinking what a handsome man he was and, and probably wistfully myself, uh, wishing that I were so... Pause. What? So, uh, I remember him being well-spoken, intellectual, um unassuming, arrogant, but unassuming, uh, in, in the sense of, I would say, disarming. While Ted was at the university. And guys, hold on to that little note right there when he says disarming, because you guys are going to see a tactic here that your boy Ted employs that is extremely, it's vile, but it's very smart as to get things done the way he ended up getting them done later on. I don't want to give away too much, but keep that word disarming in the back of your minds. He met the woman of his dreams and he told me she's everything I want. She was beautiful, she was rich. So he ends up finding his first girlfriend here, guys. This is who she's describing. She was popular and uh, he, was, he was really in love with her. But after more than a year's romance, Bundy's dream girl began having second thoughts. So she gives him the all right, because she came from an affluent family, but Ted did not. And Ted is a broke college student at this point, guys. So let's see what happens. She gives him the yeet. She realized that Ted wasn't going anyplace. He didn't have any real, he'd talk about politics and he'd talk about being a lawyer, but he really wasn't going anyplace. He wasn't carrying out uh, things. And um, she broke off with him. And that just devastated him. That was the catalyst, I always thought. Bundy took that rejection very badly and then went out of his way to find a way of wooing her back. 
All right. So I've always said this and I'll say it one more time. Typically, you know, guys either progress or regress after a breakup. So he uses it as motivation to get involved in some things and up his game. And you guys are going to see here in a little bit what he's able to do with this newfound motivation from uh, his girl breaking up with him. Because remember, he wasn't able to afford her a certain lifestyle. He didn't have the money. She came from an affluent home. He didn't. So he was never able to really measure up. Let's see what he does. Bundy threw himself into the dynamic world of law and politics, gaining a reputation as a rising star of the Republican Party. All the while, he refused to give up on his dream girl. By early 1974, the now seemingly high-achieving Bundy had won her back so completely, they began talking of marriage. Then, abruptly and unexpectedly, he broke off all contact. All right, so he breaks up with her, guys, right? And uh, so he gets his revenge. You know, he, he turns into Shao Kahn in this bitch. <laughs> and he goes ahead, you know, he, he gets into politics. He's helping the Republican Party out there. He's, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies. He's rubbing elbows with politicians. You know, he's the man on campus, and he gets her back. And then he says, you know what? Fuck this shit. I don't want to deal with you anymore. He gives her the big heat. And then also, I want to let y'all know around this time as well, he was working for the school, like a crime prevention type job, right? Where he was actually writing articles, get this guys, for girls on how to avoid getting kidnapped and raped. Holy bro. Yeah. Like, well, what the fuck? Oh, shit. Oh, so shit. he was out here working, writing articles, right? Working with law enforcement, etc. He was uh, He was involved in politics. He knew how law enforcement operated. He was involved. Uh, you know, studying law, he ended up getting a psychology degree, but he always wanted to be a lawyer. And he was writing articles to try to keep women, right, or prevent women from getting kidnapped. So this goes to show the type of guy that Ted Bundy was, okay, um, and why he was such a prolific serial killer and why he's so infamous, because he goes 100% against the grain as to what people think, okay? Uh, and then we got here a big super chat. Just saw it come in. Juan Villanueva, thank you so much, my friend. Villanueva. You have no idea how much you have helped me ever since I found FNF a year ago. I was on a dark spot, but thanks to you doing God's work, I started to improve in every way and managed to get a job in the U.S. moving from Mexico legally. I think I thank you with the small super chat I bought my, with my first U.S. CC, and I wish you all the best. Congrats on one mil. Another one for you, my friend. Thank you so much. You guys really, uh, you guys make my day, man. Because like I said before, uh, you know, do, like this channel, especially like this channel isn't about making money, guys. This channel is more about like educating you guys, giving you guys some entertainment, helping you guys learn about how the criminal justice system works and giving you guys another perspective uh, from you know, that you probably will never, ever hear real time. You know, how many special agents are you going to meet that are actually on YouTube that can give you guys an honest assessment of how law enforcement works on this side? You know, you might get a lawyer's perspective of police officers, but an actual investigator that did all different types of cases, you're not really going to get that. So, you know, I really enjoy this channel because it almost kind of helps me relive what I used to do. Cause I do miss that job guys. I think about it every fucking day. Um, but you know, it is what it is. It just, I just had to, uh, I, you know, things turned out a certain way and I'm here now. So, um, you know, obviously I left on good terms. I resigned, but you know, I had to pick one YouTube or the job. And obviously you can't do both. You can't have clout while simultaneously, you know, arresting bad guys it just doesn't work that way. Do you want to do other super chats? Uh, I'll 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 uh, I'll go to the next video. So okay, so just a quick little rewind here of what the hell's going on. So for some of you guys that are joining us, because we're almost at two thousand live viewers right now. So Ted Bunny grows up in you know 
uh, you know, poor conditions, guys. He's born to a, a mother that was uh, out of wedlock in Vermont. She moves to Philadelphia. Then she ends up moving to Washington. He grows up thinking that his mom was actually his sister, was raised by his grandparents. She, he ends up finding on later that it was his mom. She, he get, she ends up marrying another man. That guy, he adopts that guy's last name, right? The infamous Bundy last name. And grows up in kind of a rocky household. However, bright, intelligent, ends up going to the University of Washington, makes friends there, gets into politics, gets a girlfriend. She breaks up with him. He improves his situation. He becomes a, high, a higher status guy on campus, which I've talked to you guys about this before on college campuses. Status is everything. She goes ahead, gets back with him, and then he drops her like, uh, you know, like a hot potato. Now we're going to fast forward, guys, to February 4th, 1974. This is Ted Bundy's first murder. Okay, guys? So let's go ahead and roll the clip. When Dan February 4th, 1974. And Healy. Sorry, February 1st. Was a very popular young woman because she was on the radio five days a week at seven o'clock in the morning. She gave the ski report. In all of my years of studying murder, I've never heard of an abduction quite like the Linda Ann Healy abduction. I was one of many who listened to her in the morning. And I realized the day that she wasn't on the air that there was something unusual. She never showed up for work. Bundy used to frequent a bar, Dante's Tavern. On the last night of her life, Linda Ann Healy went to Dante's with another girl and a friend of theirs. Bundy probably did follow them home and waited, and he checked the front door, and it was unlocked. This is what makes this abduction so incredibly surreal. He goes down in the basement. Guys, this is reckless, what you're about to see right now, man. Wildness. Enters Healy's room. He's aware that there's another bedroom on the other side. He would tell a writer later that he choked her. He moves her off the bed. He takes her nightie off of her, hangs it up in the closet, and he makes the bed almost like in a military fashion. And he carries her at the end of the night. He takes her down the front steps, and they're steep steps, to wherever his car is parked and puts her in there. He would turn the passenger seat around so it was flat. And this guy's ends up being a huge identifying factor, which gets him in trouble later on in his little buggy right there, how the passenger seat was always tampered with, to you know, which was like weird. Why would the hell would you have the front passenger seat always either down, out, laid down flat? Strange. So this is going to be an identifying factor later on. So hold on to that. And I asked him why he did that once. He said, because well, that's the way he put his cargo in, in the car. Cargo. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. And this is a former defense attorney as well in the 70s. How's that for disgusting? Once he got girls to the destination, he raped them. He bludgeoned them. He molested their bodies. And from there, the nightmare. So she goes missing, right? This is, uh, you know, the first woman to go missing in the greater, Se greater Seattle area, right? And this is just one of many to come, my friends. So uh, let's keep rolling. And then also, I could, you know, I could hit some of these chats real fast. Uh, and then also, just so y'all know, I know some of you guys said that I'm shadow banned. The thing is, guys, you got to search Fedit 1811. That's why I have to switch the name this from Reddit funny. to Fedit. Uh, that chick look like, looks like <laughs> a bunny, LMFAO. Okay, thank you. Uh, 
who else? Slim Shady, five bucks. Is there a case that scarred you or where you had to step away for a second? Um, I've seen a lot of crazy shit, man. I've seen a lot of crazy shit. I'm desensitized to it at this point. Um, hey, bro, can you put your face cam while you play the video? Also, everyone like the stream. Uh, I guess I can. Um, I, the reason why I, I want to give y'all a better viewing experience. That's why. That's why I full screen it for you guys. Fed it with the hairline, uh, with with the hairline up clean. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, my hair is growing back, guys. Slowly but surely. If you watch the older episodes of Fed it, this thing was bald as hell, but it's coming back, man. Uh, Mitchell Rush goes, uh, hey, Mark, quick question. Would you ever consider covering the Enron scandal from early 2000? Oh, so congrats on the two-year mark. That's the first request for Enron. Um, yeah, I could do, you know, embezzlement and financial fraud as well. Um, I haven't done a big financial case yet for y'all. Those aren't as exciting. Estino Ellis, five bucks. Thank you so much. Any, anybody else? Yeah, I'm going down. And then uh, the Batman is here. Thank you for another video to listen to through my shift. Got y'all, man. No worries. Uh, yeah. And I think that's it. Oh, wait, one more. Okay. Uh, Ashento, can you do the Black Dahlia case? Uh, I'll have to research that, that one. That's the first uh, request I've gotten for that one. Wait. So, yeah. Everything's finally popping up. It's like on fast mode. Uh, okay, it's fine. We'll keep rolling the, with the clip. Okay. So, uh, so Laura Ann Healy, guys, goes missing first. There began. Then Donna Manson, she disappeared from Evergreen State College. And then you have the abduction of Susan Rancourt from Central Washington. Susan Rancourt in Ellensburg was on her way to a meeting to see about being a dorm counselor. In May of 1974, Roberta Kathleen Parks went missing. And in those days, it was reported just as a missing student. And these young women started disappearing and people wondered what's going on here. So look at this. You start seeing a bunch of random disappearances of women, college age women, all pretty much have the same look, guys. Dark hair, parted in the middle. Um, there's some speculation, by the way. Uh, my bad. There's some there's some speculation, guys. The reason why uh, he picked these types of women is because they all looked like his first girlfriend, Stephanie, the one that had rejected him before that he ended up rejecting later on. I think her name was Stephanie. But either way. That's why that's, you know, some theorists, you know, claim that's why he picked women that look that way. But if you look. Ah. Oh. Well, I think we're still live on on uh, on Twitch, guys. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Come on over to Twitch. I knew this was coming. You didn't even like play all of it. I knew. I No, nah, I know. But I knew that was going to come. All right, guys, come on over to Twitch. I knew that was going to happen. Damn. Do you want to read these super chats real fast? I can when everybody gets over. I knew that was coming. Yeah. Did you want to restart it or no? Nah. And then Geo we'll bonus. Just, we'll just keep running what it. I would normally do. We'll just keep running it. So. Hey, I... check this out. I want to try. This site. All right, guys. Sorry. I knew this was going to happen. So come on over to Twitch Ninjas. Come on over to Twitch. Super chat and Twitch. So I'll remove this stream. Come on over to Twitch, guys. Mm. Yep. We'll wait for everybody to pile in over on Twitch, and then we'll get this thing going back again. How do I? Shout out to y'all. Shout out to y'all. Come come on over to Twitch, guys. Come on over to Twitch. And I'll get this thing. Uh, and I'll get this thing going. We're going on Twitch. We're live on Twitch right now. 
Come on over to Twitch, guys. Here's the link. And I'll pin it as well. Knew that was coming. I feel like you've done, like, other ones with it hasn't stopped it. Yeah, no, it's fine. I, I figured this could happen. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll just keep rolling it on Twitch, and then I'll re-upload it to YouTube. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. All right, guys. Come on over. Come on over. Come on over. So we're on Twitch right now. So I knew that shit was going to happen. Wait, so like... All right, cool. Uh, so yeah, they're piling into Twitch right now. I'll, I'll give it a second, guys. And then we'll keep going. So, and I'll tell y'all, let me see here. I'll go into YouTube studio, see what it says. All right, come on over guys. Come on over. So I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> uh, we got 900 over here on Twitch right now. I'm going to start going here very soon. That's crazy. All right. All right, cool. All right, so... <clears throat> I'm going to just edit this part out here. So quick recap, guys. I'm going to, what I'll do is I'll, when I put this up on YouTube, I'll go ahead and just edit this stuff out. So yeah, come on over to, uh, to Twitch, guys. So all right. So, okay, quick little recap before every, all this crap happened. All right. So what we covered, guys, is basically, um, so Ted Bundy, right? Uh, humble beginnings, born in Vermont to an unwed uh, woman, right? Born out of wedlock. Mother out of shame back in the 40s, moves with her family in Philly, ends up moving, uh, you know, and she's deemed as his sister throughout his entire childhood, then ends up moving to Tacoma, Washington with her. She ends up remarrying a man named Bundy with the last name Bundy. T Ted takes that name over, and then he, you know, goes through his childhood, really kind of, you know, humble beginnings, doesn't really get along with the family too much, but he's a smart guy, ends up going to University of Washington, meets his first girlfriend uh, who has dark hair part in the middle, and she ends up breaking up with him. And he takes that as motivation to go ahead and become a better man, ends up joining, getting into politics, gets involved with the Republican Party, uh, becomes the man on campus, charming, et cetera, uh, gets involved with um, crime prevention, helping, helping young women avoid being kidnapped and raped, et cetera, ironically enough. Then he ends up uh, you know, committing his first murder uh, with Miss Healy, uh, February 1st, 1974. And then after that, a bunch of women go missing in the uh the greater washington area and uh and the police are kind of baffled right so that's kind of where we left off so let's go ahead and keep rolling the clip guys wait did you want to do the last super chats on youtube uh we'll just run with this one for now okay and then i'll read those chats later on and then brenda ball was abducted near the flame tavern she wasn't a college student that made it all the more challenging because it it adds to the randomness of the victims he took his victims from where he could fit in i mean he fit in great this is the psychological factor you don't think a killer of women is going to be a good-looking articulate young man you're not thinking in terms like that 
George Ann Hawkins was a student at the University of Washington. George Ann was abducted in June of 1974. She disappeared from an alley one night behind Greek Rome. Being a university district, people are walking around at all, all hours. So imagine this, guys. You got a crazy killer running around, right? And this is like, like Candyland for him because there's a bunch of young, attractive women, you know, all concentrated in one small geographic area. So he's able to kind of just like, oh my God, and just, you know, prowl the night, prowl around at night in his, you know, Volkswagen and pick up girls and attack them and just kind of drag them off without anyone really knowing. Guys, this is the 1970s. Okay. It's not like today where everyone had cell phones and everyone was, there's cameras everywhere. These were different times. Okay. Let's, uh, let's keep rolling it. She went down the alley. There was Bundy. Moving up. And this is actually from him, guys, when he's confessing to the murder. So this is him describing the event. Alley, using a, uh, a briefcase and some crutches. And the young woman walked down. I saw, saw her round the, the north end of the block into the alley and stop for a moment and then keep on walking down the alley toward me. And about halfway down the block, I encountered her and asked her to help me carry the briefcase, which she did. And we walked back up the alley. Does he look like a killer? Nah. Does he look like an, an abductor of women? No. He looks like somebody in need. He's got like a leg cast on his. And this, you guys are going to notice, is one of his main things that he does is he puts himself in vulnerable positions where he does what? Looks disarming, guys. So girls are like, oh, yeah, I'll help you out. You got a cast. You got crutches, etc." And this was one of his ploys to lure women into helping him to get something over to his car, whether it was books, a boat, whatever it was. Right. And you guys are going to talk. We're going to talk about a boat here in a second. And he was able to use that to lure the women over. The next thing you know, he hits him in the head with a crowbar. All right. So this is one of his tactics. Let's get back into the clip. On these crutches. I went to his room one night. He had crutches leaning against the wall by the, the door to his room. And I asked him what it was, his, what was that for? And he said um, that his landlord had hurt himself and was on crutches, but he was going to take the crutches back to the rental place. So that made sense to me. So they weren't his, according to him. Right. He had placed a crowbar behind the right rear tire. Basically, when I reached the car, what happened was I knocked her unconscious with the crowbar. So he had the crowbar staged, guys, on top of one of the tires, man. What the hell? Oh, shit! Oh, so, shit. I mean, if that doesn't show, you know, the guy's <laughs> meticulousness, I don't know what does. He hit her with such force that she came out of uh, one of her shoes and both her earrings flew off. There was some handcuffs there along with the crowbar and uh, they handcuffed her and put her in the passenger side of the car and drove away. And that's why he kept the passenger side of the car down, guys, so that he can lay them back there without anyone really noticing or arousing suspicion. And drive to a spot that he's already picked out, going to be off of a main highway. He said, sometimes you check the moon out too. So when and just so y'all know, that guy, Bill, Bill Hagmeyer, he's the FBI profiler. He was the one that was responsible for doing most of the interviews with Ted Bundy. Uh, after he was arrested. When it's going to be bright, and I don't have to leave my headlights on to see what I'm doing. And the speed with which she would have had to have been abducted tells you that probably the person had done this before. We really could not find anything definitive that tied all the victims together. The long short. Bam. So uh, 
at this point, the police don't know what the hell's going on, guys. So that's going to take us to part three here, okay? How were they able to finally identify Bundy? So this is really, um, you know, important stuff here. Um, and also, I want you guys to know that the climate in the 1970s, man, just so y'all know, the police didn't have databases. There was no formal database like there is today, like NCIC, NLITS, et cetera, which these databases connect all the different police agencies, uh, right, where they're able to go ahead and look up criminal histories in there. They're able to look up registration tags, all this other stuff. It wasn't like that, guys. They didn't have a one central location where they can go ahead and put information into. So it was very difficult for police agencies back then to communicate. Who knew this, though? Ted Bundy knew this because why? He was involved in politics. He was involved with working with law enforcement, and he was also a part of uh, the crime prevention uh, committee in uh, the Seattle area. So he was out here writing articles on to keep girls from getting kidnapped and raped. So he knew what the hell was going on. So that's why he was able to act in such a brazen fashion that, you know, we're, we're looking at it now in 2022. You would be like, what the hell is this guy reckless? But he knew the system back then and he knew he'd be able to get away, which that uh, hubris ended up costing him later on. But let's roll the clip. So now we're at a point where we got several missing college age women in the greater uh, Washington area. Greater Seattle, Washington area. Fear swept all across the state of Washington. Dan Hawkins was last seen Monday evening. When someone was abducting young women. It's hard to say whether there's any foul play or not. There was incredible pressure on law enforcement to find the person who was responsible for causing these women to go missing. Thank you very much for calling. What cleverness or what sophistication of the suspect are you looking for? that can manage to pull that off. There were no clues whatsoever. I mean, it's kind of remarkable that nobody saw anything, but Lake Sammamish was another story. All right, so this is going to be a turning, part here, uh, a turning point here, guys. Lake Sammamish uh, State Park in Washington, very popular state park, especially in the summertime with people visiting. Lake Sammamish State Park was huge. It was a magnet for all of us, young and old. Like a place you would go to in the Midwest or something with this old-fashioned concession stand and people just coming out with their little sailboats or coming out to sun. July 14th, 1974, the place was absolutely packed. There were 40,000 people there. I saw him that morning. He came over. We weren't getting along real well, so I was surprised that he came in and wanted to know what I was going to do that day. I said I was going to go to a park and lay in the sun. Molly was in Utah, and um, he asked me which park, and I think he was just wanting to know if you're going to Lake Sammamish, then he wouldn't he wouldn't be going that way. He'd go to another park. A number of people that day at Lake Sammamish were taking photos and shooting film. So this film, guys, and this actually is the actual real footage here from Lake Sammamish that summer, uh, or that spring. Yeah, I think it was summertime. This is going to be critical in them being able to figure out who the hell was behind what's about to occur. So one of the rare situations where they actually have film, but there was thousands of people at this place. Little did they know the police would want. And that was his old girlfriend, Elizabeth. And the reason I don't know why her neck is like that, by the way, guys, I have no idea. But that was his main girlfriend back in the a time where she actually had uh, children. Um uh, where, sorry, where she actually, uh, where he raised, he was with her and her child. To review this footage. Ted was able to meld into the crowd. And I want you guys to pay attention to how he uh, runs his scheme in this situation. He was wearing 
casual beach type clothing. He was able to strike up conversations with people. He was able to convince Denise Nasland and Janice Ott to help him with the ruse that he had a sailboat, that he had his arm in a, a fake sling. If anybody. So he shows up at the lake with a sling on, saying, Yo, I need help, uh, you know, with my sailboat. And he's able to kind of famoose these two young women. Okay? Let's see what ends up happening next. He has seen the silence of the lambs where the killer had that trying to get that couch into the van and he's got a cast on that. That all came from Ted Bundy. Can I help you with that? Would you? Sure. Bundy was uh, a real schemer. Remember that these abductions were benign on the face of them. They were always Bundy approaching the women in a state of, of presumed need or weakness. Can you help me carry my books, my arms in a sling? Can you help me load my sailboat onto my car? There were three women that saw Janice Hot roll her bicycle up to the beach and lay it down. And she had on a yellow bikini. And then they observed this man walk up to her. So finally, we got witnesses seeing Ted Bundy in the sling. And they heard her get up and say, hi, I'm Jan. And he said, I'm Ted. Gotcha, bitch. He gave his real name. Stupid. She was last seen headed toward the parking lot, pushing her bike with him walking next to her. So that's where that's where they had seen her prior right where, where he met her and then bam this is the car where he had it parked so he was able to talk her into walking with him oh my arm's in a sling i need help etc and you know guys think about it think of think of the the temperament at this point right it's a nice sunny day it's beautiful out it's warm everyone's out there having a good time drinking some beers whatever it may be oh yo my arm is fucked up can you help me out well i'm trying to get my sailboat out you're not going to question a guy like that especially a dude like him that's charismatic charming oh i go to university of washington Etc. So college age guy, they're not, you know, they're not going to suspect anything. And then at the time, guys, those Volkswagen buggies that he was driving, very popular car. So it was nothing out of the ordinary. Him walking next to her. And then she's never seen again. We did have about five or six other women come forward that said that they had been approached by the guy with his arm in a sling. And they look just like Janice Ott, Denise Naslin. First, Janice went missing, and that was early, earlier in the morning. She disappeared. And then later, he came back to the park. McCartney and Wings, Junior's Farm, KJI, Seattle, and Kevin O'Brien at 409. It was a Sunday afternoon, and my buddy and I, we noticed off to the side this guy just a few feet from us standing in front of the women's bathroom, and he was dressed in nice casual clothes. But the oddest thing about it is he had... A All right, so we're going to fast forward here, right? How they were able to kind of figure this out. So those two women go missing, right? 
article that people who were at the park that day, who were taking photographs of their friends and family, any filming that they had done, turned over their photographs. And so you got thousands of people turning over footage and photographs and video and everything else like that from that situation. Filmed to us to see if we could find something that would be a clue. The Lake Sammamish abductions would come back to bite Bundy. People saw him and he identified himself as Ted. There's a Ted and he drives a Volkswagen and he's handsome. And well, bunch of things coming together, right? Cast, vehicle, being charming, handsome, pause. So all these things are coming back to bite him in the ass. From the witnesses that saw him were composite drawings made. Oh, shit. And you guys look at that picture. Looks surprisingly like our boy, doesn't it? Guy named Ted. Very similar look. Yo, what? <laughs> oh. That's a L for Ted right there, man. Whoever, um, you know, went to that, <laughs> that sketch artist was, was fantastic at being able to describe him. That's an L for our boy Ted right there, my friends. <laughs> When the picture came out, no question in our minds, no question that this was the guy. Each lead has to be followed. Every phone call has to be made. Most lead nowhere. Some pan out with a speck of information that may someday help clear up the mystery of the whereabouts of Janice Ott and Denise Naslin. All right. So basically, guys, a bunch of women are missing. Now we got another two ladies missing from um, from the lake. Right. And that spurs the police to say, yo, we got a bunch of women that are already missing from the you know, greater Seattle, Washington area. And on top of that, now we got two other women that are missing. But they were seen talking to some dude named Ted with a sling trying to get them to help him with a sailboat. Fortunately, there were a bunch of witnesses there that saw Ted, saw him with the sling, saw the sailboat, saw how he was speaking, heard him speaking with the girls. And that was the last time the women were seen alive. And fortunately, with all those people there, they were able to get a damn good sketch artist to go ahead and um, draw a picture of the potential perpetrator who ends up looking like who? None other other than our boy, Ted Bundy, okay? So so let's go ahead, guys, and get to the next part here. Um, Because Ted, at this point, is starting to feel a little bit of the heat, okay? And let's go ahead. So he ends up leaving, guys. Um, the state of Washington, and he goes to Utah, all right? And he makes a big error here with what he's about to do next, and you guys are going to see. After 7 o'clock on the evening of November the 8th, 1970... Hold on, let me go back here. 18-year-old Denise Nasland and 23... So these girls go missing. ...year-old Janice Ott disappear on a warm summer day at Lake Sammamish. Several witnesses told of a smooth-talking, good-looking young man named Ted. Heat was starting to come upon him. There were clues now. A guy named Ted, a VW, a composite sketch. Your co-workers brought over the sketch to show to you? Was it because they thought the sketch looked like Ted? Yes. There was something about it that just grabbed my attention. There was just something about the jawline or something like that that made me think, wow, this is really weird. So that's his girl, man, back then. With, you know, she's a single mom, by the way. They had met in 69. 
her daughter Molly, you know, ended up with kind of like Ted as a ste- uh, Ted as a stepfather. So for them, obviously, they're like, "What the hell is going on here? Why does this guy have a striking resemblance to the man that I'm with, and exhibit some of the same traits?" And you called Seattle police. Yeah, I called anonymously to a tip line that they had set up. So she calls the police what? on him because she's scared. What the fuck is this, my Ted? There were something like 3,000 potential Teds who may or may not drive a Volkswagen, and he was one of them. But he had this terrific, spotless, clean record. You have to understand that detective work was organized in a very different way in the 70s. There was no DNA evidence. Police departments didn't even have fax machines, let alone the Internet. Yes, guys, very archaic, very chaotic. Like I said before, everything was done on paper. No computers. You had to get out there and actually do surveillance. You didn't have databases to be able to look people up. You didn't have cameras. You didn't have sophisticated law enforcement surveillance equipment. You didn't have any of this stuff right back then in the 70s. You know, and and for a small police department like uh, the agencies that were investigating Ted, right, King County, etc., they're not going to have a lot of this stuff. Maybe the feds might have had it, but they're not going to have it. Okay, especially for a missing persons type investigation. It wasn't until people missing the missing people started piling up and they saw a trend that they were able to actually finally start allocating resources and then most importantly, getting together and creating a task force. But they didn't do that until several women had already been missing. When they had a profile of him, I brought up the similarities to him. I said that's Molly, by the way, that's the same girl here in this picture. And there's Ted uh, right there. This is his stepdaughter. Uh, guys who actually surprisingly he had never done he had never hurt or killed them obviously but uh but one of the few people that he was able to turn turn the wickedness off for this guy's name's ted your name's ted this guy has a vw you drove a vw you know it's you and he just laughed no monkey of course i would never do anything like that and you didn't think it either no you were yeah that stopped the cap right there stop the cap of course i would never do anything like that Okay, so let's fast forward a little bit here. So the heat turns up on him a little bit, guys. Even his own family starting to accuse him, right? So let's see what he does next. In the beginning, I asked him, I said, did you read this? Do you know what they're saying? There's so many things here that people are going to be looking at you, kind of making a joke out of it. But once I started to worry, like, could this be true? I didn't feel safe bringing it up. I didn't want him to know what I was thinking. So you did feel fear. Well, I did. It wasn't like I was afraid of him. I was kind of afraid of my own brain. It's going over and over this. Bundy realized that if he wanted to keep killing, he was going to have to go somewhere where there was no investigation. He has the presence of mind to move from the Washington area to Utah. He's excuse. All right, so he goes all the way down to Utah um, and goes to Utah a University Law School of going to the Utah Law School, he gave Liz the option of going with him. But he was probably delighted when she said no. Yeah, she said no. I want to stay in Seattle with my friends. And he was like, thank God. Bundy left for Utah. Somebody kill a bunch of people. September 3rd, 1974. Within 12 or so hours, he would be murdering the Idaho hitchhiker. So he killed a hitchhiker on the way down in Idaho. Bundy went to University of Utah School of Law. When I was there at the law school, I would have regular contact with Ted Bundy, and everyone liked him. There were periods of time when he was absent from class, and 
people would occasionally comment on that, oh, Ted's gone again. The first semester, he's in class three times. He's like a kid in a candy store. He upped it in. And you guys are going to see why he was gone all the time. So we're going to fast forward here, guys, to this is a huge turning point in the Ted Bundy investigation. This is where he, he gets sloppy and he fucks up here. And he was drinking on this day as well, which is why the girl was actually able to identify him because she smelled alcohol on him. Uh, but let's get into this. Shortly after 7 o'clock on the evening of November the 8th, 1974, Carol DeRange parked a car in this parking lot at the Fashion Mall. Shortly after began what she now calls her personal nightmare. What makes the Carol DeRange abduction so pivotal is that she's the... And it's Carol DeRange, guys. I, I don't know why the captions are messing it up, but this is a turning point here. The only one who ever got away from Bundy. She was approached by a man near Walden's bookstore. That's not true. A couple other women have come forward and uh, escaped the clutches of Bundy, but this is the only one that actually testified in court, which you guys are going to see here in a second. This man identified himself as Officer Roslin. And he said, do you drive a Camaro? She said, yes. I said, well, my partner is holding the suspect and this individual tried to get into the car. He said they would have to go down to the main Murray Police Department to sign a complaint. Right when I was in the car, I knew I had made a mistake. Suddenly, he just pulled the car over, and it kind of went up on the side of the curb. And that's when I started absolutely freaking out. I remember screaming at him, what are you doing? This isn't the police station. What are you doing? And I could tell he just changed. He stops the car, and he attacks her. She knows she's in the fight for her life, and he handcuffs the right wrist. But in the midst of this fight, when she's scratching at him and fighting, she gets the passenger door open and she jumps out of the car. He came. Somehow, miraculously, she's able to get out of the vehicle, guys. Came out after me, out the passenger side. I remember feeling a crowbar in his hand. He was trying to hit me over the head with a, and struggling for a while. And then a car came along. I ran out into the street and just threw open their door and just jumped in on him. An elderly couple drove the ranch to the Murray police. And another reason, too, which she didn't talk about it here, why she knew it was him, guys, is because when he was uh, speaking with her and, you know, she was like, what the hell? This is kind of off. She should never got in the car with him. But it wasn't until she really started to smell the alcohol on him that she was like, OK, something's off. And that's what kind of prompted her to be a little bit more reluctant. And there were other women as well that Bundy had tried this on saying he was a police officer, whatever it may be. And they were able to escape and they never actually got in the vehicle with him. And there were a couple um, stories of this, but she's the only one that actually got in and was able to escape. And then later on testify and provide uh, crucial testimony to the investigation station. The search for her objective began. And so this is the first time we have an eyewitness of somebody who survives a Bundy attack. Sometimes the urges become such a compulsion that they can't control themselves. And that's when they make mistakes. His compulsion that day was so high, he had to kill somebody. The first one didn't work out. He's now frustrated. And so he goes to find a second victim. The teenager, Debbie Kent. My friend came back from Utah and she said, I don't want to scare you, but it, it, it's happening down there now. So now people start going missing in Utah as well. So the girlfriend is like, what the hell? I thought we just cleared this already. Like, what's going on here? Headlines of the missing women had stopped in Seattle when mm -hmm. Ted left. And they started in Utah. 
yes. where he was. Yes. What did that feel like? Oh my God, like the bottom of my world was falling out. It's like, it's just too much of a coincidence. So I did call King County Police and I did meet with the detective. You know, it's so she calls the police again, guys. One of the hardest things I've ever done. I gave them some pictures of him and they showed him to the best witness from Lake Sammamish. She pulled his picture out of the stack that the detective had given her. She said, no, he's too old and put it back in the stack. So you had cleared your conscience. The police have. So that right there, guys, is what you would call like exculpatory evidence, because now you got a witness saying, oh, no, that's not him. You know what I mean? And that actually ended up helping him out later on. But um, obviously from getting um, convicted. But, uh, you know, obviously, right, eyewitness testimony can be fleeting sometimes because people, you know, you're going off recollection. So they're like, oh, well, no, it might have not been him. It was older. So that actually puts her at ease here. Cleared him. I just need to put these fears aside. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't trust your own instincts. No, I knew him so well. Yeah, and she loved him so much. And Everything she had been did. so good. So this was just crazy. I think that... To That's a much younger her, as you guys can see. His girlfriend was very brave to call us. I thought... She had multiple... More pictures. That's, you know, her her daughter, her, him. So, you know, on the, on the surface level, guys, it looks like he's a happy family man, you know? Full contacts with the police. They did do some investigation, but it kept coming back. He's not your guy. At this All right. So now we're going to get into the next part here. All right. He actually gets arrested for this and convicted. And what happens after is wild. 1975 and Ted Bundy's got to find a place where there's not a lot of talk about missing women and where he can blend in. So he heads up the mountains to Colorado. All right. So now he's at his fourth state where he's committed killing. So it started in Washington. He killed a hitchhiker from Idaho or in Idaho on his way down to Salt Lake. Right. Salt Lake, he kidnaps a woman. That woman is able to, uh, and you guys are going to see here what leads to his arrest. She's able to identify him. So he runs over to Colorado after the fact. He was very you know, familiar with ski resorts in Colorado already. He understood that uh, those places are populated by basically strangers, and he would fit in quite well. He ends up in Aspen. On January 12th, 1975, Karen Campbell disappeared from the Wildwood Inn. Bundy ended up at the Wildwood Inn. Karen Campbell was a nurse from Michigan. She had come to the Wildwood Inn just like a day before. Karen Campbell. So she goes missing. She's, she's with a doctor. She gets in an elevator. Next thing you know, Bundy's in there and they never see her alive again, right? So let's fast forward a little bit here. He heads over to Vail and ends up killing 26-year-old ski instructor. His next victim, Julie Cunningham. Julie Cunningham. He was just not going to stop. He had more relationships with dead women by now than living women. Holy. It was all about the hunt. Bundy goes on this killing spree across the Northwest, and he kills three women. A 24-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 12-year-old. Look at that. Ridiculous, man. Killing children as well. There was no pattern between Seattle and Utah and Colorado. So these are all the areas that he struck, guys. So obviously there's no real, you know, it's in rhyme or reason. It's like he's an opportun opportunistic killer. You know, hey, I, I see this woman here. It's in a secluded area. It's dark. 
I might be wearing a cast or whatever. I'm able, I'm, I'm disarming. Let me see what I can do here. And he's, he's a criminal of opportunity. There was well, all the women match pretty much the same profile, young, darker hair. Um, and, uh, he's able to go ahead and abduct them and attack them, hit them with the crowbar, whatever else he's, uh, his method methodologies were no physical tie to them. There was nothing to uh, loop them all together. In the summer of 1975, Bundy's luck is changing. All right, big turning point here, guys. He was going from being the hunter to being the hunted. In Granger, Utah, it's a small suburb. It was like two o'clock in the morning. A cop was just getting off duty. His name was Bob Hayward. And he saw this Volkswagen parked in front of a house. He knew there were two young women living there. Then I turned that. See, and that's the thing. When you're, when you're in these small little towns, guys, you know, you got, you know, typically they don't have like their own town police. So a state police or the, you know, state troopers and or county police that patrol the area. So you get really acclimated with the neighborhood. You get really acclimated with people that live there, et cetera. So he's, you know, he sees Bundy's car in this, you know, small neighborhood. Right. And in front of these two women's houses, I don't recognize that car. Who the hell is this guy? And, you know, obviously at that point, he's like, what's going on here? Let's do a traffic stop and figure out who the hell this guy is. And this is a turning point right here. We're going to you're going to see what the hell they find in this car. Crazy stuff. Corner. Whop. And I kicked the my lights on bright and stepped on the gas and uh, he squirted. He freaks Bundy out. OK, and he, he takes off. Big mistake. So there was a chase. He pulled in the old gas station and stopped. I stopped and opened my door, and he was out and coming back towards me. I pulled my magnum out and just sit in the crotch of the door. And I said, hold it right there. Back then, guys, you know, they had sh- revolvers, magnums, those types of guns. They didn't have semi-automatic, uh, you know, weapons back then and, you know, in the 70s for law enforcement, which ended up changing after I broke down this case as well. After the FBI shootout in uh, 1986, that's when uh, more law enforcement agencies started switching over to Glocks and semi-automatic weapons. But, you know, this guy obviously had the dirty, hairy gun on him back then. He's like, hey, make your move, <laughs> you know. I said, stand still. When Hayward comes up to the car, he sees that the seat is out. So that's one red flag. The seat is out, right? And we discussed this earlier that this is how he drove his car, which this is a strange situation. I looked in that side, and this seat was laying in the back seat. And that's quite a space. You can stick a body in it. Yep. He says, the seat's broken. He said, I've got to get it fixed. Okay. You mind if I look through your car? So he gives him consent to look in a car and let's see what he finds. He had what we would call burglary tools. The ski mask. (laughs) Pantyhose with the eyes cut out. Pantyhose with the eyes cut out. He had a pair of handcuffs. Handcuffs. That's what they found in his vehicle, guys. Look at that. Handcuffs. This looks like an ice pick. Mask. um, Trash bags. Pantyhose with uh, with the eyes cut out, gloves, flashlight, crowbar, rope. Uh, this looks like a garrot, right? Like, holy, bro, what would you guys do if you saw that? You'd be like, what the hell? Like, oh, shit, oh, shit, what? <laughs> like, so at this point. What the fuck? 
the troopers like this guy was stalking two ladies. Uh, you know, I know two women were living in front of this house as well. And this random Volkswagen is sitting uh, in front of the house. Nah, man, this dude's on some bullshit. So the police officer, right, the trooper did a good job, you know, like, uh, you know, seeing something out of the ordinary and doing what police officers are supposed to do, detect crime and prevent it. That's wild, though. This is what this actual real photo, evidence photo of what they found in his vehicle in Utah. What do you use handcuffs for? I'm a law student. He says I use them in my classes. <laughs> I use the handcuffs in my law, my law classes. What, bro? What? As a lawyer, you don't need that. What the fuck? <laughs> now, what is a person doing out in the middle of the night in a residential neighborhood with all of those items? And he's driving a Volkswagen buck. Well, I took him in and booked him. And if you guys remember, this mugshot looks, uh, you know, surprisingly familiar to the um, sketch that they had, you know, done back in Washington state on those women that were found missing at the park. There's something wrong with this guy. That put him on the radar of Utah law enforcement, and they had this unsolved abduction of Carol LaRange. I got a call and it was Ted. So now, guys, at this point, right, law enforcement agencies are like, they finally got this guy in custody. This is his first contact with law enforcement. So you got a bunch of missing girls, right, in two different states, right, in Washington and Utah, uh, and, and also Colorado as well at this point. So this trooper finds this guy, arrests him, and now the law enforcement agencies are starting to figure out what the hell's going on here. And they're starting to talk. This is when the talks finally start to happen between the different agencies. All right, we'll get back to the video. He says, I've been arrested. Well, Ted, what were you arrested for? Oh, they think I'm the Ted murderer. And he laughed and I laughed. The Ted murderer from different states. That's the important thing. I didn't think he was at all guilty. And you guys are going to notice a trend here where he continuously screams his innocence. And we'll see what he says later on. When he came to the police lineup, he made all sorts of attempts to make himself facially difficult to identify. He parted his hair on the other side, so he did have a chameleon-like quality. Carol Durange came to the police station, was shown a lineup, and was able to identify Bundy as the person who attacked her. Now, remember, guys, they were like, whoa, this guy has a star startling resemblance to the person that kidnapped this girl. So that when they arrest him, they put his dumb ass in a lineup. Of course, what does Bundy do? He changes his appearance, right? He cut his hair from the mugshot that we've seen before. Remember, the mugshot before with the long hair, streaky hair, it resembled that sketch. So what does he do? Cleans himself up, changes his looks uh, quite a bit, comes in for the, uh, for the photo lineup. However, the lady that he tried to kidnap back on November 8th of 75, is able to actually identify him, and then bam, now they got him on kidnapping as well as possession of burglary tools uh, from when the trooper caught him. He was arrested and charged with the kidnapping of Carol Durange. He was a likable guy, and if he could be a killer, well, who else might be? So people just didn't want to believe it. So even his classmates are in denial because Ted, no, not the charismatic classmate. No way he would be involved in a crime like this. So they believed him in the beginning and he denied everything. 
helped raise money to bail him out of jail. Everybody in the ward felt he was innocent. I was assigned Ted Bundy's case by the Office of Public Defense. Ted immediately said something, well, there's this silly little case in Utah. And I'm, silly little case. Tradi you know, typical sociopath minimizing right there. Silly little case out of Utah. You know, nothing too big, just kidnapping. Kind of, I remember saying, no, it's not a silly little case, Ted. And look, this is also something I want you guys to pay attention to. Notice how Ted comes dressed to the court appearances. Bow tie, well-dressed, shaved, hair, um, you know, kept to a certain degree of, you know, cleanliness. Um, he does not look like a serial, you know, Manson, crazy, uh, you know, John Wayne, Gacy, whatever. He's not disheveled. He's very prim and proper, right? He looks pretty sharp. During court proceedings in Utah. Styling, right? Two-tone, has the blazer with the khaki pants, right? Looks, he looks like a lawyer almost. Bundy actually comes outside and talks to the media. How do you feel about the justice system in general? Now, I want you guys to pay attention to how he communicates when he's talking to the media when they're asking him questions about his case, which, to be honest with you, stupid. He shouldn't be saying anything to the media, but he couldn't help himself. <laughs> well, I'm sure it works, and you've got to have faith it'll work, or else you'd be, you'd be reduced to some kind of, uh, you know, mumbling idiot. Uh, I believe it works. I believe it needs to be improved. When you mention improvements, does that mean uh, ultimately you want to uh, get involved in the criminal justice system? Well, <laughs> yes, I intend to complete my legal education and become a lawyer and uh, be a damn good lawyer. Whether you he doesn't sound like a serial killer. He doesn't talk like a serial killer. He's educated. He doesn't dress like a serial killer. You know, um, it, it can cause some doubt, you know, because he does have a good, clean image on the, on the, you know, at face value. Testify or not is one of the only things the defendant has the sole decision-making power over. And Ted, of course, uh, ignored the vice and testified and was the worst witness in the world. So he testified in his own trial, which quite frankly, guys, stupid. very stupid to do that. He was an arrogant basically. And that's the way he came across on the stand. At the trial, Durange picked out Bundy as her abductor. So she positively identifies him during the trial. Pointed at him, said he was, he was the one, he was the man that tried to kidnap me. Ted thought he could lie about everything and get away with it. It's pretty hard to explain why you drive around with an ice pick and a pantyhose mask. <laughs> Most of us don't have that in our cars. Ted Bundy was convicted. Bam, and he's found guilty. Now, I also want to make a note of this, guys, that this was not a jury trial, okay? This was a judge-only trial, okay? It was essentially called like a bench trial. So the judge had sole discretion on, uh, on the entire case, and that's how he wanted it. Right. Um, and he also had pretty, you know, a pretty large stake with, you know, helping his defense team, you know, come up with things. And he put himself on the stand, which is you know, quite frankly, very unorthodox and not in your best interest. Uh, most defense attorneys, 99 percent of the time, almost never want to put their um, their defendant on the stand. And the reason for that, guys, is because the prosecution can cross examine you. And when the prosecution cross examine you, they can ask you questions, trip you up, etc. And that could put you in a bad predicament. Um, you know, because sometimes, sometimes guys, well, most of the time, actually, no statement is better than any statement. Because anything can be used against you in the court of law. Kidnapping Carol DeRoch. 
So he takes the L with his hubris, okay? Bundy got his verdict that he was guilty. He was going to be headed to a Utah State prison. Bam. L. So he takes the L there, right? So now we're going to fast forward. While this is all happening, guess what happens? They get their ducks in a row in Colorado. So he gets convicted of the crime in Utah, all right, of kidnapping. But he has, has some dirty laundry out there in Colorado to include a couple of murders. Year of the kidnap assault of a young woman from Salt Lake City. After Bundy's convicted of the kidnapping of Harold Durange, detectives have found evidence linking him to the murder of Karen Campbell. On January 12th. Back in where? Colorado. So now the walls are starting to close in on your boy. 12th, 1975, Karen Campbell disappeared from the Wildwood Inn. Hairs in his Volkswagen bug were of victims from Colorado in Utah. And that gave them enough evidence to file on him in Colorado with a first-degree murder and kidnapping charge. So they find hair fibers, and they're able to use that, guys, as evidence to effectively link them. Now, remember, guys, there wasn't really DNA like that back then in the 70s, but hair, they were able to match up hair fibers, which, you know, was their forensic evidence back then, right? Still fairly new and cutting edge. So they were able to at least put him with him during that time because how else would have if he was allegedly in utah the whole time how why would he have a woman from colorado's hair in his vehicle they transferred him they took him to the jail in aspen at that point all right some crazy shit's about to go down here guys now in aspen colorado so they drag his ass back from jail while he's in utah facing that 15 years for the kidnapping now he's getting now they're handing him with murder in colorado Ted Bundy had become pretty big news. I called the sheriff. I asked him if I could speak with Ted Bundy. We sat in this narrow cell and uh, did the interview. Okay. You are not guilty. This is a famous interview, guys, uh, from back then. And I want you guys to pay attention to how Bundy responds to the questions. You know, his demeanor, his tonality, how he puts himself in a certain light to be looked at as an innocent individual and how much he denies the the dark allegations against him. I'm not guilty. <laughs> does, that, does that include the time I stole a comic book when I was five years old? <laughs> I'm not guilty of the charges which have been filed against me. He has such a pleasant, thoughtful, calm demeanor. I wasn't at all convinced that he was guilty. He's the most pleasant killer I've ever interviewed. No man is truly innocent. Uh, I mean, we all have transgressed in some way in our lives. I've been uh, impolite, and uh, there are things I regret having done in my life. Uh, but nothing like the, the things I think that you're referring to. The creeps kind of grew on me when you talked about feeling for the family. I've been told that... Uh, Look at this, guys, how he's able to do this. Like master sociopath. I was able to talk about this with a straight face. You know, the parents of these, of these girls are, are fairly decent people. I don't know. And I really feel for them because apparently they suffered some uh, an incredible tragedy in their lives. You could tell he was just mouthing the words. They didn't really sink mm -hmm. into him. I feel as much for. Yeah, you, you say that now, my friend. But if you look at the video, he clearly is believing him, right? Look, look at the, the look of approval that your boy's giving him right there. Hold on. Didn't really sink into words. Look at that look of approval. He's like, oh yeah. It didn't really I sink into you. him. The words. See? 
they didn't really sink into him. I feel as much for them as anybody can. I asked him if his situation made him angry, and he said yes. I don't like being locked up for something I didn't do, and I don't like my liberty taken away, and I don't like being treated like an animal, and I don't like, like people walking around and ogling me like I'm some sort of weirdo, because I'm not. You think about getting out of here? Well, <laughs> well, legally, sure. <laughs> what? Well, legally, sure. Let's see about that. My class is graduating in about a month. From law school. I'll bet you any more about law than any of them. He was assisting in his own defense, so he had a right to go use the law library. This is an old, old courthouse, and the law library was up on the top floor. The judge decreed that he didn't. So, guys, just want to make this very clear for y'all. He was basically representing himself. He made himself like co-counsel, okay? So what that does is it affords him certain privileges and accesses that a regular inmate would never get. He's dressed in normal clothing. He's not shackled to the same degree. He has access to the law library. He's able to kind of roam around and make phone calls. He's able to research to uh, research uh, his own case and research legal documents so that he can better fight his case. So there was a method to the madness here, even though this is almost never recommended by any astute attorney for you to represent yourself. But let's see what he's able to do with this privilege and use it to his advantage have to wear shackles or handcuffs. So he walked about the courtroom and back into the law library as a free man. Over the months, I'd noticed a number of opportunities to just walk right out. I'd thought a great deal about escape, and I didn't know if I had the guts to do it, quite frankly. There's a pit. So this is the law house in June. I think this was June 6, 1977. Let's see what happens here. Crazy stuff of him coming into the building that morning and he's got a really concentrated look on his face he had dressed with an extra layer he had a sweater under the one he was wearing this is the day he escaped guys look at what he's wearing you can see right here multiple layers of clothing this is a very famous iconic photo by the way as well on the outside so he was planning to go that day i'm gonna mute this real quick because uh, the music. So the guard went outside for a smoke. The windows were open and the fresh air is blowing through and the sky was blue. And I said, I'm ready to go and walk to the window and jump. So he jumped off the second story, guys. Now I think I could play the sound again. So he leaves. Runs out that bitch, right? Honest to God, I just got sick and tired of being locked up. I'm tired of being locked up. He was gone about 10 minutes before anyone realized they came out and shouted, Bundy escaped. And just so you guys know, he had been training in his cell uh, for a while, jumping off the top of his bunk several times to plan for this so that he wouldn't hurt himself. But he ended up spraining his ankle when he did this. Okay. And he was on a run for about, at the, about six days. But he was practicing for this and he was like, you know, mapping it out in his head how he would do this. That's why he was able to, you know, wear another uh, layer of clothing underneath. He was able, he timed it when he would jump out, when the guard wasn't looking. He um, had been training for it. So he did better on the jump than if you hadn't been practicing for it. But he had been, you know, training his mind to be prepared to be on the run for a while. So now the manhunt begins. Reporters ran to the courthouse in Aspen because this was such a big deal. Bundy jumped out of this second-story window at the front of the Pitkin County Courthouse this morning. He was scheduled for a court appearance and apparently had been locked into the law library by sheriff's deputies. 
At both ends of town, the sheriff's department put up roadblocks. And they were warning people, if you see this man, be sure and call the police. When was the last scene? Oh, about 10.30 this morning when it jumped from the window. And there's only two roads that let you out of Aspen, guys. So they had everything locked down. So it was very difficult for him to uh, to kind of get uh, to escape, right? Because they basically, every single car that was coming in and out, they were like screening it. Well, especially cars going out because there's only two ways into Aspen. And then he went up to the mountains in Aspen and he broke into a cabin. He stayed in the cabin a few days. Bundy said he walked into Aspen, took this car, which was unlocked and had the keys in the ignition. He drives through downtown Aspen in a Cadillac. He was a terrible driver, by the so way. So he goes back. And there was a patrol. Very, very stupid. But just so you guys know, the reason why he goes back is because he was out in the wilderness, guys, for days. He ended up making it to a cabin and finding some food there, sleeping there. Um, but it got really cold. It rained a couple of times while he was there, right? Remember, guys, he's in freaking Colorado, right? Now, and, and the air is really dry. You know, if you don't have chapstick in Colorado, you're going to suffer. So he was there in the wilderness and it was it was tough it was really tough for him to to survive so at this point he's like bro i don't have food i'm starving i'm dying he's about 25 pounds below right he lost about 25 pounds in the, those six days by the way guys as well so he goes back into town in a vehicle trying to get food he takes the risk because he's at this point delirious car and they see this car weaving this is late it must be a drunk well, he wasn't drunk. It was Ted Bundy. Back he goes. How are you doing? Good. How are you? And look at how gaunt he is, guys. After they catch him back, catch him again, right? And there's the actual the the officer that pulled him over. This guy right here. Uh, here. <laughs> uh, here. You can see him grinning when he's been captured. He always acted like he'd pulled one over on on everybody. He was moved to a facility in Glenwood Springs. I was one of the staff photographers at the Seattle Times. I was given a chance to photograph this fellow named Ted. He had shackles on and I could lay on the floor. He's out here doing photo shoots with your boy Ted Bundy, right? Because at this point, guys, right, he's like a celeb. You know, this is this is national news at this point. You got this guy who might be the killer in multiple states. He's somewhat handsome, charming. People don't really know if he's the killer or not. He seems innocent, but not really. He fled from the police. He was gone for six days. He makes it back. He lost 25 pounds. Um, you know, he's he's you know charismatic with the cameras and everything else like that. Guys, this was this was the, the talk of the town back in the 70s, man. This is like the OJ Simpson back then. This was, I would say, probably back then for uh for those times, this was probably even bigger than O.J. Simpson because um, it was it was interstate. It wasn't just one murder. It was multiple. And they were trying to figure out, was this the guy behind several murders in different states all, all along the Pacific Northwest? So, yeah, they're doing a photo shoot with the fucking dude. At this point, he's almost like a rock star. And you guys are going to see this later on in his other trial. We're going to photograph him in all kinds of different ways. He wanted to be seen. This is him representing himself, doing his own legal research. That's why he's in, in dress clothes, guys. Um, regular civilian clothing. I'm Ted Bundy. Look at me. I'm captured. But in his own mind, I'm not going to be here for long. In the cell, there was a grate in the ceiling that was not secured. There was so now we're going to get into, okay, guys, fast forwarding a little bit. So December 30th, 1977, okay? This is going to be not one, but his second escape, guys. Oh, shit! Oh, and the shit. way that he did this was actually very, very intelligent. Let's get into it. 
was a light fixture that was due to be welded. It had not. Look at that. He cut. That was a cell, right? He cut a hole, right? And he lost 20 pounds to be able to get through that hole. It had not been welded. When I visited him in Glenwood, I noticed that he had lost a lot of weight. If I say he'd lost 20 or 25 pounds, I would think this would have come to the attention of the jailers, perhaps. Why is he doing this? He used a bunch of his law books and assembled them along with some pillows to make it look as if they were a body in the bed. Bundy had succeeded in carving. And just so y'all know, the night before, right, December 29th, the jailer, uh, the, the prison guard dropped his food off and left, right? Because obviously, you know, they're on the skeleton crew. It's about to be New Year's Eve, right? Everyone's on vacation, etc. This is typically how it is when, it, when you work for the state or the government. No one's fucking working. Skeleton crew, right? So they drop the food off, gets the hell out of there, right? Next thing you know, they come in the next morning and the food is still there. So like, what the hell? They're thinking something's off. So they look in the cell and they see that the, the bed, right? It looks like there's a body in there. So they're like, hmm, what the hell? So they go ahead and they open up the, the cell door and they go and they realize, holy shit, it's his books. It's not even him. So that bought him a little bit more time, you know, for them to eventually find out where the hell he was. So the guy had cut a hole out at the top and escaped through the roof. <laughs> oh, man. Second escape, guys. A big enough opening in the ceiling of his cell. He lost so much weight that he was able to wriggle through. He called through the ducting, just like in a movie. All right. Uh, music as well. So let me just. So he goes into the closet and he goes into one of the jailer's apartment, right? That wasn't there. This is astounding. Puts on civilian clothes. Stuff. And he gets out into the night and he's free again. And he's out of there. They woke up in Glenwood Springs and discovered that Bundy had escaped basically 12 hours before. Yep. They didn't catch on until later on because, again, the only reason they even paid attention was because he didn't eat his food. So he had left. That evening, guys, on December 29th, but they didn't find out until the next day. And again, it's New Year's Eve, skeleton crew. They don't have a lot. They can, you know, they don't have as many people working. Did you think it was possible to get out this way? We've eliminated what we felt at that time, any possible escape route from the roof. However, we were wrong. These keystone yeah, cops, wrong. as the paper would refer to them as, let this guy go again. What's Garfield County doing to find him? We're looking everywhere, uh, trains, buses, and this, the usual thing. I and just so y'all know, this is a massive L, bro. Anyone that works in the prison system already knows, like, you got <laughs> Someone escapes from your prison? That is a massive, massive, massive L, man. So, yeah, I mean, they got to just kind of, you know, deal with the cake on their face and try to find the guy. But at this point, you know, he's escaped in civilian clothing. He, has, he had a head, head start on them. And then on top of that, said fucking Bundy. He's not an idiot. Well-spoken guy, charming, charismatic, like we said before. He was able to hide in plain sight, which sets the stage for the next chapter in this serial killer's spree. No idea where he is. People should be very careful, should check on their neighbors, make sure their cars are secure. Uh, we're just looking. I couldn't believe anybody left. Alright, so now where the hell did Ted Bundy go after this? Well, I'll tell y'all where he went. We're gonna go ahead and look at his route. Bundy was already a thousand miles away in Chicago. After spending New Year's Eve in a bar in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Bundy took a bus to Tallahassee in Florida. 
He also caught a college football game as well while he was up there. I think it was, uh, was it the Rose Bowl? I forget which he, but he did catch a college football game while he was up there as well, guys. So my man went on a whole tour. He was taking buses, planes. He ended up going to Atlanta as well um, in between getting to Florida. So he hit a couple of uh, major cities, guys, while he was on the run from Colorado. Yeah, the wildness, wildness. With a new identity, he rented a room in the Oaks Lodging House in the heart of the Florida State University student area. After 18 months of imprisonment, Bundy's scheming had paid off. He'd made fools of the law and was finally free. But for Ted Bundy, it wasn't enough. Serial killers love being at the heart of the drama that's unfolding around them. All right, no one cares what this criminologist's got to say. We're going to fast forward here a little bit to the murders, guys. That he abhorred. The 14th, 1978. So January 14th, 1978, guys. Okay, this is a very important date for the Bundy uh, timeline. Let's see what he does. Just one week after arriving in Tallahassee, Ted Bundy struck again. So just picture this, guys. Your boy is on the run for murder in Colorado. Okay? He was convicted of kidnapping in Utah and... On his way to Florida, he stopped in several states. He went to Chicago. He went to Michigan. He caught a college football game. He went to Atlanta. Then he ends up where? In sunny Florida. And the reason why he picked Florida, guys, was because it was on the other side of the country. It was a different type of atmosphere. And another reason, too, guys, and I, you know, I read this as well. He picked Florida because it would be cheaper for him to kind of move around undetected because in a warmer state, he didn't have to rely so much on, you know, having a lot of clothes, moving around with a lot of stuff. So Florida afforded him a little bit more anonymity. And then on top of that, it was the other side of the country. Remember, guys, the world was not as connected back in 1978 as it is now. OK, Bundy was famous, right? Obviously, in the Pacific Northwest and that uh, that entire area over there. But in Florida, you know, though he was in the news, it wasn't to the same degree. OK, so that afforded him a little bit more anonymity so that he would be able to move change his name and be able to kind of operate. And remember, he's still a normal looking guy, et cetera. So it allowed him to go over there to uh, the panhandle area of the great state of Florida. About three o'clock in the morning. So he goes into a sorority house here. A young woman named Nita Neary was returning to her sorority house. She entered the downstairs. Uh, she saw a man run out of the house carrying what appeared to be um, a stick in his hand. She went upstairs and, and awoke the, the sorority. So the girl comes in from a date and she sees a fucking guy like like running out of the house. Like, what the hell's going on here? Like, what what's what? Like, what the really nigga? So what is this like? Did you just smash and run? Like, was there an argument or some shit? So she's like confused. What's going on here? Right. And what she's about to find out, she's about to make a very grisly discovery, my friends. President when Karen Chandler walked out of her room. He turned to Karen and said, did you see and realize that the Karen was bleeding? Jim Sewell was a sergeant and assistant to the chief of police when his phone rang that night. The dispatcher called and said, Sarge, we've got two dead and two dying. Sewell was the first plainclothes officer on the scene. When I got to the house, upstairs, I went into Bowman's room. 
Margaret Bowman had been strangled and was dead upon review by our officers. A nylon stocking was tied tightly around Margaret Bowman's neck. And remember, guys, what does he do with the nylon stockings? He has that. He had that in his kit when he was caught back in Utah. She'd been clubbed with a branch so hard that her skull had been shattered. It was everything you think about a beating victim, what, what she would say. Across the hall, another victim was discovered. Lisa Levy, she had also been, been beaten and appeared to be strangled. Yeah, he, I, I don't know why they're saying a branch guy, a branch. It was more like a log, like a heavy-ass log is what he beat them both with. And that's what the, uh, the witness saw him running out of the home with. 20. And he had the mask on his head as well. He had like that, that, uh, the, the stockings on his head as well. Year old Lisa Levy was in bed, dead, lying on her side. The covers pulled up over her shoulders. She'd been sexually assaulted with an object. The attack had been savage. Lisa had also been bitten uh, on, the, on the breast and on the buttocks. Okay, guys, that's going to end up becoming a big piece of evidence later on. So hold on to that, guys. So he bites one of the victims in the butt and on the breast, okay? And one of them actually is a double bite mark on the buttocks, okay? That's going to be a key piece of evidence later on, so keep that in mind, all right? So he goes into the sorority house and kills two women, sexually assaults one of them, and he also beat a couple of others, okay? Two more girls, Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner, had also been bludgeoned. They only just survived the brutal attack. All that, that the built-up feelings burst out in, in a shark frenzy in that sorority house. Well, wow. It was a shark frenzy. The serial murderer doesn't have boundaries, so it's as if a trigger is set off, and they become not angry, they become rageful. You guys got to remember, too, right? He hasn't killed in a while. He's been locked up. He's been cooped up. So this is his first chance to finally enact on his wild fantasies of attacking what? Younger age college women. Um, you know, to, to our knowledge, right, he didn't commit any of these murders while he was traveling the United States trying to get away from Colorado while he was on the run. But this is his first confirmed killings since being out of prison. So he'd been in jail for damn near a year and a half. So he's, he's going crazy, guys, which obviously goes to show the callousness, the brazen attitude towards it, the, the lack of regard, the reckless disregard for human life and for his own ability to evade detection. He was like, yo, this is nuts. I haven't, got, I haven't killed someone in a while. And he just acts crazy, all right? Which is why he was so vicious. To the point that when you see the viciousness of the killings that they commit, you, you, you're taken aback. You think, well, how could this mild-mannered person do such horrendous things to another person, a human being? It had been just two weeks since Bundy had escaped from Colorado. Could have hold it in two weeks later. Almost three weeks after the Kai Omega attacks, a white dog. Okay, so this is going to get into the Kimberly Leach murder, which I'm I'm uh, I'm going to uh, cover that for y'all as well. Um, but we're going to go ahead and go right into the trial, how we got caught. Okay, and I'll discuss Kimberly Leach after. However, just so you guys know, he ended up killing a 12 year old girl. Okay, after the the sorority attacks, he ends up killing a 12 year old girl. Uh, about a couple hours away 
from Tallahassee. And I'll get into that case well because it's, it's its own other trial, own other investigation. But he gets caught after the Kimberly Leach murder and goes to trial, which I want you guys to see right now because this was became a media spectacle, okay? Uh, he ends up getting arrested, all right, in uh, Pensacola, Florida. The killer that had left a trail of bodies across America had come out of the shadows, but he wasn't going down without a fight. And there he is right there. This is the sheriff of that county, and this is uh, your boy right here, right, Ted Bundy. And he reads him the indictment, and this is a famous scene here, which I'm actually going to show you guys real fast. Historic moment. So he gets arrested, right, in Pensacola, Florida. Here's the uh, the sheriff at the time, right? And they had a hard on. They wanted him, like, gone because at this point, they're able to piece him together with all the other crimes all over the Pacific Northwest. So they're like, yo, you're going to die in Florida. We're going for the death penalty on you. Florida doesn't play with that stuff, guys. So this is a very iconic moment here, and I'll just play it for you guys in full. What do we have here, Ken? Let's see. Oh, it's an indictment. Ken is the name of the sheriff. This is the indictment. He says, what do we have here, Ken? Oh, it's the indictment. Right? Why don't you read it to me? You're up for election, aren't you? He says you're up for election. So he, he, he tries to write this off as a political move from the sheriff. Because he, he purposely walks him out in front of all the cameras, right? Didn't you? Mr. Bundy? He told me that you told him that you were going to get me. He said he was going to get me. Okay, you've got the indictment. It's all you're going to get. Let's read it. Let's go. Theodore Robert Bundy, you are charged. Indictment. Two counts, burglary. Two counts murder in the first degree, three counts attempted murder in the first degree. Design or intent to affect the death of said Lisa Lee. My chance to talk to the press. Contrary to section 78204, Florida statute. I'll plead not guilty right now. And your grand jurors being So he says, I'll plead not guilty right now. And that's where that famous hand sign comes up where he holds his hand up. Um so, uh, and this is where this is taken from. So let's get back into this. So they arrest him in Pensacola, Florida. Um, and he had murdered those two girls at the sorority house and Kimberly Leach's 12 year old, which we'll cover the, the Leach case here in a second after, after this trial, the first trial, he goes on trial for the sorority murders first. What do we have here, Ken? Let's see. You always say an indictment. All right. Why don't you read it to me? You're about for election, aren't you? Mr. Bundy got it, didn't you? Mr. Bundy told me that you told him that you were going to get me. He said he was going to get me. Okay, you've got the indictment. It's all you're going to get. Protesting his innocence, he was going to lead his own defense. The public would have to prepare themselves for a new Bundy. Ted, the showman. So now he does what? He makes himself like co-counsel on this one, guys, as well. Takes a more active role in his own investigation. Uh, sorry, in his own trial. And you see him and uh, look at him. He's wearing a suit and everything. And he's... <laughs> He turns this thing into a circus court. And then on top of that, guys, this was one of the first uh, criminal cases that was nationally televised. OK, so O.J. Simpson. Hey, no, they, they, this is the first main one that was televised in the United States. So this was all over the U.S. Crazy media attention. All right. Bundy's trials were among the first to be televised and his notoriety turned them into a media circus. The ego, narcissism, and outright arrogance of the serial killer were on open display. And Just so y'all know, every single state sent a representative from their media company to come and cover this trial, as well as, I think, 30 to 40 different 
uh, countries brought media representatives to cover this case as well. This was huge in 1978. This was the talk of the world at the time. Created a figure of grotesque fascination. I, I think that I think the people in Florida, uh, both the public and the and this guy right here was one of uh, Bundy's attorneys, guys. When he got convicted of uh, got convicted and got put to death, he was one of his attorneys on the appeal to try to push his uh, stay of execution. That's who this guy is. Prosecutors uh, in the case and the judges probably also are. Uh, uh, were fascinated by the uh, enormity of what they thought he had done. And, and, and the fact that, you know, he was, he could have been the person next door. Uh, somebody described him as, uh, you know, kind of uh, a lot of uh, common people's uh, ideal of kind of person they would like their daughter to marry. Uh, and so I think that there's something frightening about the prospect that, you know, this all-American-looking guy could be a serial killer. Bundy became a cult figure. Women flocked to his trial. Hey, man, what do I tell y'all? Hypergamy doesn't care. Clout is the main amplifier. All these girls, is during his trial, guys, they were all there watching him, to include his girlfriend, Carol Ann, which we'll talk about her in a little bit as well. He ended up fathering a child with this woman. But look at all the women that were sitting there watching the trial, just amazed, okay? You know, there's a reason why women love serial killers and they love, uh, you know, drama and all this other stuff. And this studies have actually shown this too, guys, that women respond way more favorably to negative treatment than men do. Men tend to respond very favorably for, uh, from an attraction standpoint to favorable treatment, whereas women tend to, uh, you know, or positive treatment. That's why giving a guy a compliment goes so far versus women tend to respond more favorably to negative treatment. This is why bad boys that don't put prioritize girls and don't pedestalize girls do so well. But meanwhile, if you do pedestalize a girl and give her compliments, what does she do? She loses respect for you. So this guy is able to hit so many different attraction triggers from being charming, charismatic, a former law student, uh, clean shaven, well-spoken, uh, doesn't look like a serial killer, but they find out that he was involved with potentially killing a bunch of different women. And remember, guys, at this point, it didn't come out that he killed 30 women. They just suspected him of potentially killing these women. But they knew that he had killed these women in Florida for the uh, in the sorority home. So all these college students, right, show up to watch the trial of a dude that killed one of their classmates. So, uh, <laughs> hey, man, it is what it is. I tell you guys all the time, attraction is not a choice. Every time he turns around, I kind of get that feeling, no, no, you know, going to get me next. But yet you're, you're fascinated by him. Very, very. Every night when I go to bed, I just, you know, I get very scared. I shut my door and lock him. Try to imagine yourself in his place and to see how he's feeling, looking at the pillows, the blood stains, and everything, if he really did it or not. Why do you do it? I don't know. <laughs> Robin Lloyd, Channel 4 News. Ted had his gallery of women um, nearly every day in court, and they would send him messages. Uh, they would try to get his attention. They would try to catch his eye. And then later when he was on death row, he got tons of mail from them. They would send him nude pictures of themselves, uh, you know, erotic stories, their, their fantasies of being with him. And this happened a lot also, guys, with other serial killers such as the Night Stalker and Jeffrey Dahmer as well. A lot of fan mail. Uh, I think Charles Manson as well. So, yeah, man. I mean, like I said before, if you could pick one amplifier, it is by far status, guys. That's what it is, man. Nice guys finished last, for real. 
<laughs> don't be a serial killer, though. I know some of y'all, okay, go be a serial killer, get girls. Don't, don't be stupid. But you guys get what I'm saying here. Um, it's a very bizarre syndrome, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm frankly at a loss to explain it. Yeah, that's because you're not RP aware, my friend. You're a blue pill simp. Let's keep going. You're going to represent yourself or you're going to get another attorney? I'm staying with the man I know best right now, and that's me. Um, his ego led him to believe that there wasn't a brighter attorney out there, even though he had never finished law school. The extraordinary part about the Bundy trial was the extent of his participation in it. Bundy appeared every inch the lawyer, cross-examining witnesses. And yo, I don't know how insane you guys... Yo, the fact that you are the defendant and you're cross-examining the same police officers that showed up to arrest you and or gathered evidence against you is wild to me. So, and you guys are going to see here the detail he kind of goes into it, but this is unheard of. Another reason why Ted Bundy is so infamous. He represented himself in a murder trial for a capital for a capital offense where the death penalty is on the table. So for him to take such ridiculous risk thinking he didn't even complete law school. Yo, I could do this. I'm going to be a big part of my own defense team, bro. Wild, 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 wild. Analyzing blood samples, even questioning forensic evidence of bite marks taken from a victim's bottom. So they, uh, one of the state's main piece of evidence guys was they brought in a forensic uh, odont odontist, essentially. And that person was able to say, yo, his bite marks on the buttocks 100% align with his teeth, right? Because they had done a search warrant and gotten the, the placings of his teeth. They had done a mold on his teeth. And they compared that to the scars on the woman's buttocks and her breasts. And they were able to match it. And back then in the 70s, they didn't have DNA testing like we do now. So they were able to go ahead and use teeth to identify him as the perpetrator, which back then as well, guys, just so y'all know, uh, they would use dental records a lot of times to identify individuals uh, who may have been murdered and they didn't know who they were because DNA wasn't a thing. This is why Whitey Bulger back in the day, which I brought up, I did this case as well, Boston Crime Boss, when he was to murder his, his people, his victims, he would always pull out their teeth after they were murdered so that police were not able to identify the victim after the fact and trace the victim back to him. Our contention all along, Your Honor, has been that they have taken my teeth and twisted them every which way but loose to fit. He swaggered across the courtroom and he does all the gestures, puts his hands down, and I mean, he watched enough courtroom and enough Perry Mason on television that he absolutely looked and sounded the part of a lawyer. And it was just amazing to believe that this was the guy that was accused of all these brutal crimes. Good morning, officer. Just as he had separated his murders from his everyday life, in court, Bundy separated the serial killer from the lawyer, though the jurors felt differently. His, his, his defense team guys got so frustrated with him, one of them actually walked out after giving like a really good cross-examination, by the way, on the police officer who was, you know, stuttering on the stand, didn't really know, um, or actually, no, one of, the, one of the star witnesses, the uh, Bundy's lead attorney, did a really good cross-examination and totally tore down his credibility. And then right after that, Bundy basically said, yo, my counsel is not adept. They suck, etc." And that defense counsel, that lawyer ended up walking out and leaving. And that left Bundy kind of on, a, on his own to defend. But then the judge was like, no, we're not going to go ahead and replace uh, your attorney now. So they brought him back and he ended up still finishing out the case. But obviously there was some bad blood between them because he said in open court, yo, this counsel right here is not, um, He's not proficient enough because they were like, yo, Ted, 
we don't we can't win this thing. You need to plead guilty, bro. If you plead guilty now, we're going to uh, we can spare you the death penalty. But he refused to plead guilty. He wanted to fight it to the end. Um, he was apparently thinking he was coming across as a lawyer and they were seeing him in a much different light. He never really uh, appreciated the the weight of the of the accusations that he carried with him and the effect that that had on ordinary people. The first victim you saw. All right. So this is very um, shocking here, what you guys are about to see. So I want you guys to pay attention to what he asked this officer and what ends up happening. Bundy appeared to relish the role of lawyer. At one stage, launching into such an excruciatingly detailed cross-examination that he appeared to be reliving the crime. One after another, his trials were descending into chaos. It went. He asked the officer, right, that found one of the bodies, so what were her eyes like? Describe in detail, to the best of your recollection, what you were able to see. What were the marks like? What else did you see? Oh, you saw that. And he had to go into detail about seeing her eyes being like open, the 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 wound in her head it was like a baseball size, um, the blood all over the place, how her body was positioned. Um, he asked her, he asked him an invasive question like, "Did you touch her? Uh, you know, when you went and you did your investigation?" Which he responded, "No, I just pulled the sheet off. I didn't touch her actual corpse." He was asking a bunch of very invasive questions that didn't really make sense. Um, but the, that hurt him with the jury because the jury was like, what the fuck? Why, why is this dude asking this shit? Like, what the, like, what's wrong with this nigga? Like, what? Right? And it seemed as though he was like almost reliving the, the crime while asking the officer to describe the scene after the fact. Because keep in mind, guys, after he killed the individuals, right? He killed the victims. He didn't stay there and like, look at it. He got the hell out of there. Y'all saw the witness that saw him run out of there with the log and the mask on his face. So he didn't have time to really sit there and observe and really relish in his crime like he normally did. Because keep in mind, Prior to this, when he killed his, his victims, what he would do is he would kill them, bring them out to a rural area in the woods. He would decapitate some of them. He decapitated about 12 of his victims, right? And he'd go back and, like, look at the body, then leave, then come back, look at the body again. Sometimes he practiced necrophilia on the bodies. So this was an individual, right, that was very sick in the head, that liked to see uh, the extent of his crimes after the fact. So he didn't get to enjoy and get that pleasure with these sorority girls. So he's asking the police officer in open court, to go ahead and describe what he saw so that he can almost kind of fantasize it in his head. Goes to show the kind of uh, crazy individual he was. Somebody said bro was bricked up in the courtroom. <laughs> Day and night on his whim, he got to the point of auditioning some of the lawyers for who would make the opening statement, who would cross-examine certain witnesses, who would make the closing argument. To lawyers trying to conduct a, an overall strategy of a trial, this was impossible to deal with. You could Yeah, this is a nightmare for defense. Oh, my bad, guys. Video. My bad, my bad. Sorry. Yeah, this was a nightmare for um, defense counsel. Didn't have a theory of defense when the client was constantly pulling the rug out from under you. In a final act of farce, Bundy used a legal quirk of Florida law. Okay, so we're going to skip this because they, they pulled it. This comes from the other trial, which they didn't do a good job of distinguishing it, but it's fine. I got y'all. This is why doing the research is so important. So now we're going to talk about the first trial. What led him to actually getting convicted? What was his big fuck up? Okay. And uh, we're going to cover the little, the little quick little summary of that first trial. Then we're going to go into the second trial with the murder of Kimberly Leach, 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. Rest in peace to her. His fate. Carol Durant, positive trial. Young man. 
During the trial, two events would seal his fate. Carol this is the first trial, guys, for the two college girls that he killed. The Ranch positively identified Bundy as the man who tried to kidnap her from the shopping mall in Utah. Most damning of all would be the bite marks recovered from the body of Lisa Levy. Anne Rule attended the trial. She still found it hard to believe the friend she'd once worked side by side with on a suicide helpline could possibly be a savage serial killer. It all comes back full circle, man. The afternoon testimony came from Dr. Richard Suveron, who is a forensic um, dentist. He tested. That's a famous photo of them getting the impressions of his teeth for the uh, for the murder trial, uh, getting the impression so that they can go ahead and compare it to the injuries from the buttocks. The head had bitten two of the Chiomegas and left teeth marks in the breasts and buttocks of one of the dead girls. Our teeth are almost as good at identifying us as our fingerprints. And that's his teeth impression right there. And Dr. Suvaran was explaining where all these marks and how they match exactly with Ted's. He had very unusual teeth. And just so y'all know, also, um, the trial was actually held in Miami. The trial was not held up north where the crimes originally occurred because it, it was a media spectacle. They were worried that the trial would the, the jury wouldn't be impartial. So they went ahead and got uh, a very diverse ju jury, right, of black men, women, uh, white people. It was a racially diverse uh, jury. Um, and it was a jury trial, unlike the, his bench trial that he did in Utah where he was found guilty. So um, they had to move the venue to Miami to actually do it, okay? Uh, that's another important factor as well. And this doctor that they brought in was a Miami doctor. And he said, there's no question that Ted Bundy bit this girl either before or after he killed him. Court was over and Ted was walking out of the room and he was always handcuffed and manacled. And he was carrying his, his files as he usually did. And he looked at me and he went like, I didn't do it. I have no, I have no part of this, but I knew he did do it. I went down the hall and threw up because I had to accept it at that point. Theodore Robert Bundy was found guilty beyond reasonable doubt. Bam. Holy, man. That's an L right there, my friends. Big L. Ted Bundy's fate is now in the hands of Judge Edward Cowart. The judge will announce this afternoon whether he will send the former law student to the electric chair. Yesterday, the jury heard Bundy's mother. That's his jury. The jury, as you guys can see, fairly diverse here. Hold on. Let's go back to it. The judge will announce this afternoon whether he will send the former law student to the electric chair. Yesterday, the so you guys can see pretty diverse, right? You got women, men. I know there, there were some black guys in the back as well. You can see one over here, a Caucasian guy here. So, you know, pretty diverse um, jury panel down there in Miami. Jury heard Bundy's mother ask that her son be spared, but the state reminded the jury of the victims. How nice it would have been if Lisa Lee and Mark. There's another picture of the um, of the jury. And here's the prosecutor right here uh, giving his closing statements. Bowman's mother could have been there on the morning of January the 15th of 1978 and asked for mercy for them. So he's saying no mercy for Ted because he didn't give mercy to the victims. Bundy was sentenced to death by electrocution. But the conviction would be just the beginning of years of schemes and appeals 
as Bundy's celebrity grew on death row. When he would talk to you, you'd have one face that would be looking at you, but you always felt like there was a game going on. Law enforcement had lists of missing girls that they and their families wanted information on. Okay, so he gets convicted of the first murder, guys, right? And uh, in Miami. So now he goes to trial right after for Kimberly Leach, a 12-year-old out of, uh, I think it was Lakeview, Florida. So now we're going to cover the Kimberly Leach case, okay? Because I didn't want to get you guys confused or whatever. But keep in mind that when he was on his killing spree in Florida, he had killed those two college girls. Then a day or so after, he had killed a 12-year-old girl uh, miles away. And we're going to cover that second case, which he also went to trial on this as well, okay? Whole separate trial. Almost three weeks after the Kai Omega attacks, a white Dodge van was reported stolen from the media department of the Florida State University. Four days later, it would resurface. 100 miles away in Lake City. 12-year-old Kimberly Leach was attending junior high school. About to start a PE lesson, she realized she'd left her bag in her homeroom. She was given permission to return to the other building to get it. She did not return. That morning, a witness saw a young girl, close to tears, being pushed into the passenger seat of a white van by a scowling man. He assumed him to be an angry parent. So that's key right there. And we're going to talk about the evidence that they found against him as well uh, in this. But this is what also occurred. That same morning, another witness saw a white van swerving almost out of control on the highway. The angry driver shouting towards the passenger seat. Just days later, the white van that had been stolen from the university in Tallahassee was recovered. Very, very driven. It had driven uh, some 500 or so miles. And we found signs of trauma in there. There were, there were branches and leaves and, and hair. All right. So this is going to lead to the trial, which I'll, I'll go into. I'll show you guys the trial as well, because uh, the Netflix documentary does this a lot better here, which I'll show you all. Um, right here. And then also, I just want to let you guys know. So he committed just to give you guys a quick little timeline. January 15th, he killed uh, the two college students. And then on February 9th, he killed uh, Kimberly Leach. OK, so literally about a month later, he goes ahead and he kills an innocent 12 year old girl and kidnaps her from uh, from the school. So um, now he's going to go ahead and face trial uh, for the Lakeview case. To make this was the prosecutor on the case. So they go ahead and they go after him for the death penalty for a second time. Sure, certain that he was executed. The strategy of the trial was very simple. We had tons of evidence. It was and just so y'all know, he went to trial for the second one uh, in February of, um, or no, yeah, th no, this was later on. This is like a year later. This is in 1980. OK, so uh, so this is the evidence that they ended up having having for the second trial of Kimberly Leach. Eyewitness that saw Bundy loading Kim Leach into the white van at the junior high school. And in that white van that he was driving was a blood state. The blood type was the same as Kim's blood type. Now, that's an important thing to realize. They weren't able to definitively identify 
it as her blood, guys, because back then, remember, DNA evidence wasn't uh, a thing. However, they were able to at least match it to be the same blood type, even though they weren't able to definitively say it was her blood. So circumstantial evidence, but what I tell you guys all the time on this podcast, circumstantial evidence, when coupled with other pieces of circumstantial evidence, almost always paints a very solid picture. So let's keep going into what they had. Numerous fibers from the clothing from Kim Leach's body were found on the van carpet. And they found her body, guys, a few months later in the woods. That's how they were able to piece the, the van and the, uh, the clothing. Fibers from uh, Bundy's blue blazer was found on Kim's clothing. Blue blazer. Shoe tracks. There was mountains of evidence against him. Shoe tracks Wearing his, a blue uh, tie size. and a big grin, Theodore Bundy faced the jury for the last time. So here he is wearing his bow tie, right? Uh, basically, <clears throat> during the second trial. And at this point, I think he had been found guilty. Bundy defended himself, and that uh, did not go over well with the jury. He displayed a tremendous amount of arrogance. One thing that he did was his... And I'm going to show you guys what he did right here, okay? I don't want to play too much of the Netflix special because you know how they be with the copyright stuff. This is what he ended up doing while uh, on the second trial. Bundy and Boone first became friends when they worked. He proposes to his girl, Carol Boone. Together in Washington State in 1974, Bundy actually proposed to Carol Ann while she was testifying on his behalf at the penalty phase of his murder trial in Florida. So he had already been found guilty. So what does he do? Calls her up to the stand and says, so you marry And I do hereby marry you. That was all that was required uh, for them to be officially married in uh, the state of Florida. Author Stephen Michaud visited Bundy numerous times on death row. He says he helped arrange the surprising courtroom proposal, even procuring rings from Tiffany and a wedding outfit for Bundy. I went to the men's store and bought Ted some, uh, a pair of khakis and a bow tie and some Argyle socks so he could look spiffy for the, for the occasion. Bundy and Boone even had a daughter, the result of a moment of cloak and dagger intimacy in prison. Carol told me that there were two ways to have sex. One was to sneak into the bathroom, and the other one was behind the water cooler. A recent Netflix documentary featured audio of her speaking about how the baby was conceived. We kept looking out the window. There's a black guard in the trail night. After the first day, they didn't care. Carol Ann Boone believed Bundy's claims of innocence for many years. She finally divorced the serial killer in 1986 and lived in virtual obscurity for more than 30 years. Carol Ann Boone is believed to have lived in this Seattle neighborhood as recently as last year. Yeah, so craziness, guys. Um, <laughs> he was killed three years later in 1989. But yes, he went ahead and proposed to her in the middle of his murder trial. Uh, after he had been found guilty and was about to be sentenced to death a second time, guys, because he knew according to Florida law, all he had to do was do it in front of the, you know, a, an open court record and just get an acceptance from her that she wanted to get married. And then, bam, now they're married according to Florida law. So the guy really gave no fucks. Could you imagine that? Yo, let me just propose to my girl that's been holding me down while I'm, you know, on death row or about to be on death row uh, right here in open court in front of the jury because I give zero fucks for the trial of a 12-year-old girl that I killed. Holy yeah okay and she believed them till the end so uh let's go ahead and round this bad boy out so after so fast forward a little bit guys he gets convicted 
He gets convicted in two different trials. The one of the sorority girls, the two women that he killed in the sorority house, and then also of the 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. So he's at his last days now, man. He's It's 1989, and he's starting to, you know, finally feel the pressure of uh, death is coming, right? Because he's going to be electrocuted. He's scheduled to be electrocuted January 24th, 1989. So what does he do beforehand? Let's get into it. Only when facing almost certain execution, after 11 years on death row, did Bundy finally start to confess. He lied to his family about it. His mother and his wife at that time completely thought he was innocent. And then in the last, really in the last couple days, he told them the truth that he had committed these murders. There wasn't a big humanitarian effort on his part. He wanted something out of it, and I'm sure it was probably, if it only took prolong his life for another few weeks or whatever it was, that he was able to manage. Just days before he was to be executed, Ted Bundy began admitting the hideous murders of at least 36 young girls across America. Seven different states. He had dumped many of the bodies in the mountains or in woods. And he had often returned to them to commit necrophilia. That is having sex with dead bodies, guys, necrophilia. And then on top of that as well, that's where these confessions, that's how the Ted Bunny tapes came uh, was all of these different confessions that he gave to uh, the murders, which even then he had a tough time of confessing to them directly. He had to do it in the third person view. And I say that with air quotes, if you know what I'm saying. He had sometimes brought the heads home. Ted Bundy was executed by electrocution on the 24th of January, 1989. But was this killer of innocent young women created by nature or nurture? Now, I want to give you guys a little bit of the atmosphere when they were trying to uh, kill him. Actually, you know what? Let me give you guys a little bit of uh, play, play his voice for you guys where he confesses to one of the murders. Just listen to how chilling this is. Take up the road. Take the closing argument. To this Lord is him describing... This is him describing a, uh, a victim that he decapitated and uh, hid in the mountains. Up the road, uh, uh, 25 to 50 yards. He was the monster mm -hmm. everyone feared. Uh, he knocked her unconscious and strangled What made him live was to kill. And then now we're going to fast forward here, guys, to the atmosphere when he was being executed on January 29th, 1989. On January the 23rd, 1989, at Florida State Prison. My bad, the 23rd. He, they executed him on the 24th. Sorry about that. Journalists were be 1989. being shut out of one of the biggest death row stories of the decade. The serial killer, Ted Bundy was about to reveal what had driven him to commit some of the worst sex crimes America had ever seen. In five cases, he uh, took the girls' heads off and, and kept them as souvenirs. 
In one case, he, I believe he bit a nipple off. He was like a, a shark, uh, just, you know, feeding in a, in a frenzy. He could look into their eyes, he could hear their last gasp, and actually breathe their last breath as they exhaled. As journalists competed to get Bundy's final interview, he said, Hold on. Uh, I know it's giving you guys it's giving some quality issues. Surprised everybody by agreeing to talk to one man only. All right. So I want you guys to kind of catch this interview that he did with his lawyer slash legal, uh, well, religious representative, kind of. Okay. Dr. James Dobson, a Christian evangelist who flew in especially for the interview. So this is one of his only interviews and see what he blames it on. This is very interesting stuff. You really feel that hardcore pornography and the doorway to it, softcore pornography, is doing untold damage to other people and causing other women to be abused and killed the way you did others. Listen, I'm no social scientist and I haven't done a survey. I mean, I, I don't pretend that I know what John Q. Citizen thinks about this. <clears throat> but I've lived in prison for a long time now. And I've met a lot of men who were motivated to commit violence just like me. And without exception, every one of them was deeply involved in pornography without question, without exception, deeply influenced and consumed by an addiction to pornography. As Dobson saw it, this interview contained a powerful message, one that was central to the Christian evangelical movement and which fanned the flames of the debate about the role of hardcore pornography in violent sexual crimes. So they were able to use Ted Bundy kind of as a poster boy for porn is bad, porn is bad, you know, which I agree, porn is stupid, you shouldn't be watching it. But, you know, for them to go ahead and say, yo, this is what led to him being, uh, you know, a very violent serial killer. I mean, it's, it's deflection, you know, let's be honest here. But this was what Bundy did, guys. Uh, while he was facing death penalty, he had filed several appeals. He'd been trying to st uh, get a stay of his execution. Um, he was confessing to his crimes in an effort to buy himself more time to stay alive. And the thing is, is that, you know, it went up all the way to Supreme Court. They denied it. Appeals kept getting denied. And he was able to do this for the better part of over a decade um, until they finally executed him later on in 89. The interview was given to every broadcaster in America on one condition, that they play it unedited from start to finish. But had porn really been responsible for turning a seemingly all-American boy into a monster? And that's where you can, you know, have the debate. Uh, and I'll play another part of this interview as well, just so you guys can kind of get an idea of what kind of guy this was. One should become addicted to it, and I look at this as a kind of addiction. Like other kinds of addiction, of addiction, you keep, I would... And this was filmed the day before he died, guys. Keep looking for more potent, more explicit, yeah, more graphic of material. Like an addiction, you keep craving something which is harder, harder. Something which which gives you a greater uh, sense of, 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 of excitement. But had this addiction made him a killer... This controversial interview divided public opinion on the role of pornography in sex crimes. It was an extraordinary meeting between a violent serial killer and a Christian evangelist that had been brought about when God sent a message to a lawyer and his wife. Uh, we were watching the evening news and they uh, showed us a picture of Ted Bundy and she looked at me and, and said, John, the Lord 
Bundy. I'm gonna fast forward to another part of his interview as well. I just want you guys to kind of get an idea of what you know how the guy speaks and conveys himself. This is obviously towards the end of his life when he's on death row, about to be executed on the electric chair. Um, and you know, obviously he's trying to do anything he can to kind of save his name at this point and get a little bit of uh positive news before he goes out. Had gained a reputation for being a cunning and manipulative interviewee. Dobson was entering the lion's den. With nothing to lose, this final taped interview seemed like the perfect opportunity to really find out what made Bundy the killer tick. First of all, you, as I understand it, were raised in what you considered to have been a healthy home. You were not physically abused. You were not sexually abused. You were not emotionally abused. No, no way. I, and that's part of the tragedy of this whole situation is because uh, I grew up in a wonderful home with two dedicated and loving parents and one of five brothers and sisters in the clip ted talks about his childhood being loving and christian but at the time of his execution a defense psychologist uh came up with with a lot of material that suggested otherwise and we know guys that that's cap why well rewind to the beginning of the show we had already shown that he grew up in kind of a disheveled household. His mom was his sister for a while. He didn't really have a, a strong father figure. His mom got married later on. Um, it was a very uh, unorganized home. He didn't grow up with money, etc. He always felt inadequate. That's why when he had his first girlfriend, uh, he couldn't provide a certain lifestyle for him, for her. So she left him. And then he ended up, you know, getting into politics, getting his status up in school. She eventually took him back. And then he said, you know, fuck this shit. Gave her the big fat yeet. <laughs> and then next thing you know, he went ahead and committed his first murder on February 1st, 1974. Though some of his confessions show that he had actually committed murders prior to that. But his first known confirmed documented kill was set February 1st. 1974 um, on Healy. Uh, so, you know, th he, this is him kind of uh, lying. You know, let's be honest here. Uh, you know, it's his last days. He's trying to leave with a uh, good public face, and that's just kind of what it is. Let's see if we got another clip here from the interview as well. I'll play this. Um, yeah. Drop of a young boy fatally corrupted by pornography. Those of us who are, who have been so much influenced by violence in the media, in particular pornographic violence, are not some kinds of inherent monsters. We are your sons and we are your husbands. See, trying to deflect accountability a bit, you know, because obviously you've been convicted of some heinous crimes. And we grew up in regular families and pornography can reach out and snatch a kid out of any house today. He, he snatched me out of my home. It snatched me out of my home 20, 30 years ago. Towards the end of the interview, Ted sort of begins to catch on to what Dobson wants him to say. And you, you notice that he, he issues these dark warnings about all the other, you know, the, the other minds out there that are being, you know, polluted by what they see on cable TV. And, and what he's arguing is, is that the, the individual responsibility you know, to, to be a citizen, to not be sociopathic, to actually be empathetic and have and have a, a conscience um, is is can be undermined by dirty pictures. Yeah. So, and I agree with that sentiment that, you know, it was, it, I, though I do agree that, that probably there was some influence on pornography on his, um, you know, f fucked up mind. Uh, for you to completely blame that is, uh, you know, just that's just ridiculous. And what I want to leave you guys kind of with before is um this right here um this 
Uh, let me go ahead and. Okay. So, Christina, you got anything? What's your thoughts on this case while I pull this last video up? Oh, hold on. Go ahead. There you okay. go. You got it? Yeah. All right. You're on. No, it's just interesting. Like, think about it. Like, back in the day, everybody's so trustworthy. You leave your doors unlocked. Yep. You get into random cars, and then you look at now, it's like, hell no. Yep. I would never. So, like, I'm not surprised that the guards fell for him. He knew how to, like, play the game. Yeah. No, it's yeah. wild. And I want to show you guys this short that I actually posted on my instagram uh i think this is very um gives you kind of you know ted bunny's temperament here with the situation uh let me see if i can make this a little bit bigger for y'all goddamn shorts oh no that's not what i want Hold on, let me refresh the page. Sorry, guys. Committed, of course, uh, was apparently little Kimberly Leach, 12 years of age. Uh, I think the, the public... So he's asking him about Kimberly Leach. The outcry is greater there because an innocent child was taken from a, from a playground. What did you feel after that? What was there? Were there the normal emotions three days later? Where were you, Ted? I... I can't really talk about that right now. That's yeah. see that little bit of smirk that he gave there. It's too painful. I would like to uh, like to be able to convey to you what that that. Uh... So you can see he's like he's smiling a little bit. He's he's imagining, you know that that day. You can see it in his eye. You can see it. In, you know. Sometimes the things that aren't said speak the loudest. And you can see it right from his facial expressions, et cetera. He's bringing them back to that day. And you can see like a, 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 a sinister satisfaction. I had experiences like that I can't, that I won't okay. be able to talk about. That. Okay. Bam. I mean, that tells you guys everything you need to see right there. So, yeah, man. Uh, pure evil. Ted uh, Bundy right there. Um, so, guys, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I put up the timestamps, put this thing back on YouTube for y'all. Hope you guys enjoyed that, man. Um, don't forget, we're going to be uh, doing a Money Monday tomorrow live on Fresh and Fit with our boy Aaron Clary. It's going to be lit. Uh, we're going to talk, talk about getting your finances in order, obviously, um, towards the end of the year. You know, it's that last quarter. Um, and, uh, yeah, Christina, you got anything for the people? I mean, if you guys have any cases you guys want to do, just um, contact me on Fetty1811. On Instagram. Yeah, on IG. Um, yeah, that's it. All right, man. Uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed that, man. I'll put this up on YouTube here in a second. I'm just going to upload it. And uh, other than that, man, leave you guys with the outro. Don't forget to like the Well, well, yeah, like the video when I post this back up on YouTube. Love y'all. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed.